Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The Boston Strangler. The mid-1960s were a turbulent time for a lot of people in America. The burgeoning civil rights movement, the countercultural sexual revolution of the hippie movement was kicking off, and tensions from the Cold War meant that a lot of people were carrying around a decent amount of anxiety about the future every single day. And the residents of Boston and the Boston area from June 14th, 1962 through July of 1964, they had even more to worry about. A man the newspapers dubbed the Boston Strangler somehow seemingly tricking one area woman after another into being led into their homes where he would then proceed to strangle and rape them. The papers were printing graphic crime scene details and criticizing the police for not being able to catch the killer or even come up with a lead suspect, pushing many residents to the brink of near hysteria. Police in five different jurisdictions scrambled to question every known pervert, petty criminal, person with a history of mental illness and violence who might be connected to the heinous crimes in some way, in any way, and then the police found Albert DeSalvo, a man brought in on seemingly unrelated charges who then confessed to everything. The Boston Strangler was behind bars. Case closed. Or maybe not. Irregularities in the crimes, gaps in DeSalvo's story, and the pressure on authorities to solve the case have led some to believe that DeSalvo was responsible for maybe one or two of the Strangler's murders, but not for the rest. And he was never charged with any of the murders. Actually, no one was ever officially charged with the Boston Strangler murders. Many years later, evidence would reveal that DeSalvo was responsible for at least one. But what about the others? Today, we'll dig into the strange case of the Boston Strangler and into the life of the man who would confess to being the Strangler, a man who for sure committed other disgusting, violent crimes, Albert DeSalvo. We'll follow the Boston Police Department as they struggle to find the perpetrator of these crimes that eventually form what was colloquially known as the Strangler Bureau a team dedicated to finding one killer. All of this and more on another true crime. Bet you're going to lock your doors now if you weren't already edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday. Welcome back to the Cult of the Curious, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, Emmanuel David Sock Designer. 
Socks. Time traveling Karen historian, the sock master, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, and Triple M, hail to all of you. Thank you for giving us something interesting to suck once more. A vintage Time Suck hoodie in the shop at badmagicmerch.com today. So soft, so warm, so much sucky snuggliness. Is that a word? Even if it isn't. Love it. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Uh, recorded this episode before knowing how much we made via Patreon this month uh, from the Space Lizard. So I will wait until next week to announce the charity and how much we'll be able to donate. And that's it for announcements. We're just we're just cruising right to it today. Time to head back to the 1960s and over to the area of Massachusetts and meet some dirty birds. Today we'll meet a few uh, dirty dudes, but mostly focus on one man who may or may not have been the Boston Strangler, but was certainly a killer rapist and all-around dirtbag. His name was Albert DeSalvo, and he would be given a few different nicknames for the preserve preserve. What even is that? Perverse life of sexual crimes he led, including the measuring man, the green man, the master sucker. Wait, what? That last one is me. Oh my God, I'm the strangler. Uh, No, I wasn't even born yet when these crimes happened. Uh, Those first two nicknames were true. Uh, Most of DeSalvo's major crimes involved molestation and rape, and they would allegedly evolve into potentially 13 murders of women ranging tremendously in age from 19 to 85. Two additional murders were initially reported by Boston Papers as belonging to the Strangler, but were later definitively attributed to other killers. The murders, whomever committed them, scared the shit out of the women in Boston. And they terrified most of the men as well, who were worried about their wife or sister or mother or daughter, or because of the wide range in victims' ages, that even their grandmother could be the Strangler's next victim. Most of the bodies were sexually violated in a number of ways, and when the papers printed details of this sexual depravity, the crime shook many Bostonians to their core. In the early 60s, the still very Catholic city and much of America was extremely sexually conservative. The counterculture revolution still hadn't quite kicked off. The age of leave it to beaver and father knows best of malt shops and sock hops being the places most teenagers rebelled was still where Americans dwelt. Uh, Unmarried casual sex was definitely happening, but it was still very frowned upon in mainstream polite society. Widespread use of birth control pills. Uh, which had been approved by the FDA in 1960 and would quickly lead to increased premarital promiscuity uh, still in its very beginnings. People were a long ways from casually and frequently accessing hardcore porn on free sites like Pornhub and YouPorn on their cell phones. People were a long ways from having cell phones. Adult movie theaters had just popped up in Los Angeles for the first time in 1960, making it to New York City soon after that, but they still hadn't made it to Boston. Kink shaming, though not a term yet, was not only alive and well, it was accepted and expected. Moms weren't walking in on their sons masturbating to Bukkake or ATM videos yet, or finding butt plugs under their daughter's beds or under their son's beds. Uh, Hardcore magazines like Hustler and Penthouse still actually uh, or still wouldn't casually be sold at gas stations and bookstores for many years. And no one was prepared to reckon with a serious sexual sadist, a perverted killer who targeted women from young co-eds to old widows. When the killings began in 1962, people in Boston, like people everywhere in America, were still watching Bonanza, the Andy Griffith Show, the Flintstones, the Beverly Hillbillies, shows where, uh, oh my heck, was about the most profane thing you'd ever gosh dang hear. The most sexual activity you might see on your boob tube would be a light, quick peck on the lips. Most TV couples still slept in separate beds and some top-heavy TV mom wearing a tight sweater was about the most sexual thing you'd see. Lucifina was super sad and felt super uh, sexually stifled in 1962. She was not being hailed. She was being put in an ill-fitting blouse and told to sit up straight and watch her language. 
The most provocative film released in 1962 by far was Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, which strongly insinuated very age-inappropriate sexual attraction and tension, but didn't have any nude scenes or sex scenes. And when it came to crime, Perry Mason was about as hardcore as TV got. Uh, Today, with all of the uncensored true crime podcasts out there, you know, like this one, uh, with documentaries featuring crime scene photos of murder victims with sexuality and nudity depicted regularly in both film and television, hard to imagine how shocking newspaper accounts of sexual barbarism must have felt to some 1962 readers. Descriptions of anal lacerations and of random objects left inside of vaginas for investigators to find. These descriptions must have blown people's fucking minds. 1962. Many of them had truly never read anything like it. Boston's media outlets caused a great deal of hysteria with their sensationalized accounts of the killings. The fear the people of Boston felt about the Boston Strangler was very, very real. I actually can't think of a modern equivalent, uh, at least not in recent years. Maybe the 2002 DC sniper attacks in terms of just no one feeling safe. No one feeling like uh, they they knew when the attack was going to come next. And as far as, you know, killing a, a wide variety of victim types. But those attacks were uh, far more detached and not sexually violent. Uh, The fear Bostonians felt maybe similar to the fear New York City's residents felt over the Son of Sam killings during the summer of 76, or the fear the Zodiac Killer put into the hearts of people in the Bay Area in 69 and 70. Probably even more intense than those examples because there were more victims and the killings again were sexualized. And the killings occurred in a much smaller span of time than, say, the Zodiac killings. 15 women originally reported to be Boston Strangler victims, all murdered in an 18-month period that began on June 14th, 1962, ended on January 4th, 1964. And then almost 11 months later, Albert DeSalvo is arrested for rape, ends up confessing to the murders, and Bostonians breathe a collective sigh of relief. But was he really the Boston Strangler? Maybe, maybe not. He definitely killed at least one of the women. Uh, A lot of people around the original investigation who are still alive seem to feel pretty confident that he was responsible for most, if not all the killings. And the killings attributed to the Strangler definitely did not continue once he was behind bars, which, you know, could point to him looking like the guilty party. Uh, Whether he killed the other victims or not, he was the man deemed guilty of the Boston Strangler murders in the court of public opinion. And the public did rest easier after his arrest. And since he is by far the man most commonly thought to be the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo is the man whose life we're going to suck on in today's Time Suck timeline. And towards the end of the timeline, for you true crime aficionados already familiar with this case, uh, we will definitely explore the possibility that he wasn't a strangler, uh, look into some other options. And now, let us bow our heads and suck. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. On September 3rd, 1931, Albert DeSalvo is born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, city of Chelsea, located in Suffolk County, directly across the Mystic River from the city of Boston. Uh, by the way, what a badass name for a river, Mystic River. I remember watching the 2003 uh, Clint Eastwood movie, uh, the same name, great movie. And I just thought the term Mystic River was made up for that movie. Nope, it's a real river. Uh, a real short river, only seven miles long, flowing into the Boston Harbor out of the lower Mystic Lake. Unfortunately, the name Mystic has nothing to do with being mystical. It wasn't given its cool name, you know, because uh, spirits were once witnessed coming out of the water or going into the lake or because the lake was thought to be a portal to some other plane with demons or monsters or some shit on the other side. Now, it comes from the uh, Algonquian word Mistetuk, which just means large estuary. Damn it. I couldn't have mean watery monster stream or liquid demon tube, moving lake of mayhem. 
Something anything cooler than large estuary. Oh, well. Uh, enough about the once very full of fish, especially herring, but then very polluted, but now not so polluted river uh, that divides Chelsea from Boston and has nothing to do with today's tale. <laughs> As of the 2010 census, Chelsea had a population of 35,177 and a total area of just 2.2 square miles, making it the smallest city in Massachusetts area-wise, uh, the 26th most densely populated incorporated place in the country, and the second most densely populated city in the state behind Somerville. Back in 1919, Chelsea was even more densely populated, super crowded. In fact, there was 52,662 people living in that area of just over two square miles. About half of them were recent immigrants. Foreign-born residents comprised 46% of the population. Chelsea still has the highest percentage of foreign-born residents in any city of Massachusetts or in Massachusetts. Uh, as recently as 2010, 38% of Chelsea residents had been born outside the U.S. All those foreign people were living there because that's where a lot of blue-collar jobs were. In the first two decades of the 20th century, Chelsea had transformed from a quiet suburb to an industrial city with shipbuilding, lumberyards, metalworks, paint companies, and more lining Marginal Street. Albert's parents, Frank and Charlotte, had five other children in addition to him. Uh, Charlotte Irene DeSalvo, born three years before Albert in 1928. Joseph Frank DeSalvo, born two years ahead of Albert in 1929. Dor uh, Dorothy May, born three years later in 1934. Richard Edward, born five years after Albert in 1936. And then the baby of the family, Frank DeSalvo Jr., seven years younger than Albert, born in 1938. So Albert was basically a middle child. Albert's mother, Charlotte Irene, born Charlotte Irene Roberts, was a local born to other locals. She was of Irish descent. Shocking! An Irish person born in or across the river from Boston? What are the odds? Uh, super high. If you know anything about Boston, Boston has the highest concentration of people of primarily Irish descent of any city in the U.S. Uh, by quite a bit at roughly 23 percent as of 2017. Uh, more back then, most of the immigrants who poured into Boston in the 19th century were Irish. I fucking love Boston, by the way. Uh, both Lindsay and I do. Easily one of our favorite American cities. Great city. Uh, great accent. Uh, Charlotte's ancestors were amongst those Irish immigrants. And then Charlotte was born in Chelsea in August of 1910. Her listed occupation in the 1940 census is housewife. Listed level of education is none. Her family had lived in Massachusetts for several generations before her working as, uh, you know, poor shoemakers, laborers, factory workers, that sort of thing. Albert's father, Frank DeSalvo, not Irish. Uh, he was 100% piece of shit and also 100% Italian. Uh, born in Boston in May of 1908, Frank was the son of two Italian immigrants, here we go, uh, who'd come to Massachusetts together in 1892. Uh, his occupation on the 1940 census says laborer and his listed completed level of education, seventh grade. And Frank has been described in interviews with Albert's younger brother, Richard, and also with uh, Susan Kelly, an Albert DeSalvo biographer, and, and a couple others as basically being truly a colossal piece of shit, uh, described as being an incredibly violent very abusive man who regularly and horrifically beat his wife and children. At one point, Frank allegedly knocked out all of his wife's teeth and then bent her fingers back one by one, breaking them as a psychopath does uh, right in front of their children. His father of the year, the son of a bitch. Uh, Richard remembers another fight where he and Albert's dad knocked their mom to the ground and then... Uh, uh, yeah, Frank knocked the mom to the ground. And then when Albert got in between them, his dad grabbed him by the neck, lifted him off the ground, shook him like a rag doll. Money problems apparently were a real issue in the DeSalvo household, which added to tensions uh, that would be used as an excuse for physical abuse. During the Great Depression, when Albert was born, the factory town of Chelsea was the poorest town in all of Massachusetts. 
arguably just as rough as any of the worst neighborhoods in Boston or maybe rougher. And Frank DeSalvo was particularly rough. Albert's dad was not just physically abusive. He also liked to sexually uh, degrade and humiliate his wife in front of the family. Uh, He did things almost guaranteed to fuck his kids up for life. Frank would allegedly bring prostitutes home, have sex with them in front of his wife and children. According to one source, biographer Susan Kelly, Frank would force his family to watch him fuck prostitutes. Albert's childhood does not even feel real. It feels like one of the one of Time Suck resident dark crew or dark true crime comic, excuse me, Steph Coxcurvy's routines. If your daddy made you and your brothers and your sisters watch him have sex with a prostitute in front of his wife who was your mother, you might be a killer. If your daddy snapped your mama's fingers one by one like a couple pieces of dry kindling in front of you when you was just a little boy, you might be a killer. Uh, if you're confused right now, uh, well, welcome to Time Suck, new listener. Uh, get the fuck out of here. You can't take some serious weird. Uh, some of the psychiatrists who later met with Albert after his arrest would say that Albert carried the trauma of watching his dad have sex with prostitutes the rest of his life and that he'd express it in the sexual nature of his crimes. Yeah, I bet. Uh, Albert, not surprisingly, would grow up to have a very skewed view of what sex should be and how he should interact with women. What a childhood. Uh, What a a childhood home raised by one barely educated parent, one uh, not educated at all parent, barely scraping by in the 30s, witnessing domestic abuse, violent, especially violent abuse, while also being given an incredibly crude, demeaning, and dysfunctional introduction into sexuality. Sounds like a good recipe to bake up a sexually deviant psychopath. Not surprisingly, while specific details are not given, several sources state that young Albert, like many serial killers, seemed to enjoy torturing small animals growing up. Yeah, he and his dad probably tortured them together. Uh, Speculating there. No source says that Albert and Frank tag-teamed on any animals, but it would not shock me in the in least to learn that they had. Frank did teach his kids how to shoplift. Uh, seriously, that's a new one. Uh, Albert would get in trouble for petty theft and burglaries numerous times throughout his life, as uh, would many of his siblings, and of course they did because their dad, Frank, uh, was the one who taught them how to steal. I told you, Frank, DeSalvo was an epic piece of shit. So many of the killers we've covered. I'm not saying this excuses anything they did, but their dads were either not around or or they had a super shitty dad. In another incident of dark DeSalvo family lore, Albert's older brother, Joe, was thrown down the stairs by dad when he was nine. And then young Albert, only seven, trying to defend his brother, smashed his dad in the head with a glass vase, shattering it. Uh, if you're a fan of Shameless on Showtime, the, DeSal- the DeSalvos feel like an even more dysfunctional Gallagher family. In 1940, when Albert was nine, According again to that U.S. Census, the DeSalvo family lived on Arlington Street in Chelsea, a short uh, few blocks from the waterfront and near a railroad. This year, Albert's dad, Frank, abandoned the family. But don't think that means he was done abusing them. No, no, no. He was, he was way too much of a piece of shit just to let them live in peace. After abandoning the family, he would still show up randomly and go on drunken rampages and tear up the house, beat his sons, rip their clothes to shreds, hit his wife, just do weird, hateful shit, like destroy the family's furniture by drilling holes in it smash glasses, break dishes, bash in cupboards. And I'm sure he only had nice, respectful comments and compliments to toss around, you know, with the family while he's doing all that. If you wrote this motherfucker into some Lifetime or Oxygen made-for-cable kind of melodrama, that movie would get terrible reviews for the abusive husband and father character not being believable, just for being too over the top. But also, kind of fun, right? I mean, (laughs) maybe not the best guy, but pretty fun. Uh, Did I mention that most people in the neighborhood knew Frank as Fun Frank? Such a good time. People would be like, hey, have you seen Fun Frank recently? And they'd be like, yeah, 
Yeah, he stabbed by my house about two months ago. Uh, he kicked in the front door, uh, knocked out two of my uh, teeth. Then he squeezed my wife's breast while she screamed for him to stop. Uh, then he ripped off her dress. <laughs> then he threw one of our dining room chairs through the window. And uh, right before stealing some money, well, we had stuffed in a, a cookie jar. Wouldn't you know it? He took a shit on our dining room table. <laughs> That's fun Frank, all right. Classic Frank! Uh, my wife's pregnant with his kid right now. Did I mention that? Uh, I'm still trying to get a bunch of my blood out of the carpet. So much fun with Frank. Everybody knows I'm kidding about the fun Frank stuff, right? Uh, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, let's move on. Uh, by the time he was 12 in 1943, Frank's son, Albert, was already a budding delinquent, having been arrested numerous times for various petty theft crimes, uh, also more than once on assault and battery charges already. Throughout his adolescence, Albert went through periods of very good behavior, then lapses into criminality. In December of 1943, the local police had had enough of dealing with Albert's shit. He was sent to the Lyman School for Boys, along with his older brother, Joe. Uh, the police were probably sick of the entire Gallagher, I mean, DeSalvo clan. Lyman School for Boys was opened on the side of the State Reform School for Boys, which had opened back in 1848, believed to have be, uh, believed to be uh, the first publicly funded reform school uh, ever opened in the, in the U.S. The Lyman School, no longer in operation as 1971, located just over 35 miles west of Chelsea in Westboro, situated on roughly 1,000 acres near Lake Chauncey. About 500 acres were prime farmland maintained by the 400 students living there. Students were subjected to strict discipline, lived in so-called cottages, large brick buildings providing shelter for about 100 boys in each. Corporal punishment used to keep kids in line at Lyman. Some kids may have gotten more than just a beating. Various sources reference rumors of runaways who were never caught nor heard from again. Local folklore says that the missing runaways were not runaways at all, but kids killed by abusive staff whose bodies were buried in swamps behind the hill. And that is folklore. Uh, and even if it was true, though, living there probably still a step up for Albert and Joe than it was, you know, from living back home and having dad always swinging by. Probably still better than fun Frank. Uh, in early 1944, while Albert was in Lyman, his mom, Charlotte, finally filed for divorce from fun Frank, and the divorce was finalized on July 1st. Frank was ordered to pay child support, and according to social worker reports, never paid what he was supposed to. Instead, he would send his ex-wife threatening and demeaning letters, telling her she was ugly and diseased, a disgusting, neglectful mom. Uh, I'm sure the spelling and grammar in those letters was perfect. He'd tell her she needed money. She should go whore herself out. Just so much fun. <laughs> All class. Fun Frank, so much class. In October of 1944, at the age of 13, Albert was paroled from Lyman, returned home, started working as delivery boy in a delivery boy in Chelsea. Uh, just a few months later, things in the already rough town of Chelsea got even worse. In late 1945, after World War II, long, slow, and steady population decline hit Chelsea. It would lose 38% of its population between 1940 and 1980. This was due in part to the construction of an elevated expressway which destroyed hundreds of homes and the resulting out-migration took away a lot of local businesses. In August of 1946, at the age of 14, Albert returned to the Lyman School for a second round of rehab, this time for stealing a car. He finished with his second term in 1948 and then he briefly enrolled in middle school at the Williams School, a weathered brick building at 180 Walnut Street in Chelsea, junior high that's still there. And he graduated from eighth grade in 1948. In the 60s, when author Gerald Frank wrote a book about DeSalvo, uh, he said that Albert's 1948 class picture still hung on the wall at Williams. Albert stood a head taller than the rest of his class because he was two years older, having been held back twice. After graduating from junior high, 16-year-old Albert decided to join the army. And I usually think when I read about guys under the age of 18 joining the army, uh, what a culture shock that must have been. But in Albert's case, probably such a relief to get away from his poor, dysfunctional family. Right? Fun Frank wouldn't be allowed on base. 
taking orders wasn't going to be anything new for him, considered he'd spent roughly three years of his, you know, adolescence between the ages of 12 and 17 in a reform school where he'd get beaten by staff if he got out of line. From 1948 until 1956, Albert served in the Army as a military police sergeant with the 2nd Squadron 14th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Uh, fairly ironic, considering his past and future life of crime. Uh, for a time, Albert was stationed in Germany, was honorably discharged after his first tour of duty. He quickly re-enlisted, took up boxing while in Germany, actually became the European middleweight army champion. Fun Frank's son knew how to use his fists. Only good can come from that, right? Uh, too bad he couldn't have just stayed with boxing, uh, you know, and took all, all that Fun Frank rage out on punching bags and opponents in the ring. Instead, he would later use his hands to overpower women. Uh, he would then rape and murder. During his second tour in Germany in 1952, Albert met his wife, 19-year-old Ermgard Beck, an attractive German woman from a local supposedly respectable family who hasn't had much written about her in secondary sources. She would later change her name to Sonia and her last name to Anderson to make it harder for people to track her down and ask her questions about being married to the Boston Strangler. She'd moved to Oklahoma where she would live until the age of 79 and then die there in 2012. Albert Ermgard lived modestly in Germany off of his military money. Albert was promoted to Specialist E5 during his second tour, but then demoted back down to private for failing to obey an order. He would still receive an honorable discharge at the end of his second tour. In April of 1954, the young couple, maybe happy couple, I don't know, moved to New Jersey after Albert was transferred to Fort Dix in New Jersey, located about 16 miles southeast of Trenton. And while at Fort Dix, it seems that Albert's sexual crimes begin. It's at least where we have the first record of an accusation that would end up involving law enforcement. On January 3rd, 1955, a distraught New Jersey mom living near Fort Dix called the police. Uh, that afternoon, she'd been preparing a roast for dinner. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. She had to hurry out briefly to shop for a few ingredients she didn't have, and then she left behind her nine-year-old daughter, Lucy, her two younger kids, Billy, eight, and one-year-old Alan, uh, asleep in the bedroom. The baby was. Uh, when she returned 45 minutes later, Lucy told her they had a visitor, a soldier, who said he was here for the rent, and this made zero sense because this woman and her husband owned the house. Questioning her daughter, Lucy ended up saying, and mommy, I don't like that man. He touched me here and here. Lucy indicated her chest and between her legs. Lucy said that after the man touched her, her brother Billy came into the room and the guy took off running. Her mom called the police. Billy and Lucy told them the same story. They described what the man looked like and the description reminded one of the officers they were talking to of a description of another man a woman had reported the week before. This other woman had said that she was reading in her bungalow at about nine in the evening when she heard a knock on the door. Young man stood there when she answered, dark hair, dark eyed, wearing a sports jacket and blue slacks. He asked, ma'am, did you see a prowler looking through your window? No, she said with some alarm. Is your husband home so, so he can look for him? Her visitor asked. And when she shook her head, no, he went on, well, do you mind if I look around? She said, okay. He wandered around her yard for a few minutes and returned to the front door. Then when he asked her about her husband and when he would return home, uh, she got a little suspicious, said goodbye, shut, and locked her door. Then she peeked out her window, watched this dude walk over to his car that was parked in front of the house, sit in it without turning it on for 10 minutes like a fucking creep before driving away. She wrote down his license plate number. Nice work, anonymous lady. Hail Nimrod. She had the police called, uh, or she called the police, reported the incident. The plates ended up belonging to a car registered, of course, to one Albert DeSalvo. The officer speaking with Lucy and her mom had questioned Albert about the incident and the woman's description matched the kid's description. So going with this gut, uh, this officer brought Albert in. Lucy and her brother, Billy, immediately identified him as the man who had molested her. 
The next day, Albert was indicted on a charge of carnal abuse by the Burlington County, New Jersey grand jury. But Lucy's mom, fearful of the publicity, fearful of what her, her daughter would have to go through with the trial, refused to press the complaint and the charges were dropped. So, damn it, this dirtbag got away with it. And I have to wonder, how many times had he done something similar before? How many other houses had he weaseled his way into? Had he been pulling similar shit back in Germany? Was he molesting girls over there, raping women? I think there's a decent chance he was. While Albert was out trying to rape and molest in New Jersey, uh, his wife was pregnant, just like his dad. Fun, frank, son, it's all class. Gentleman and a scholar. In the spring of 1955, Albert's first kid is born, Judy. No exact date given for her birth. Couldn't find the exact date in Ancestry.com or any other sources. Seems like Judy's mom worked real hard to stay out of the public spotlight and make it hard for reporters to find out any info about her or her kids after Albert's later arrest for rape and then for, uh, well, he actually never got arrested for murder, but suspected of the murders and good for her. Uh, while we don't know Judy's birthday, we do know she was born with some type of congenital, uh, congenital, genital abnormalities, uh, though we don't know exactly what those were. Congenital genital abnormalities, this is not roll off the tongue very well, uh, refers to a variety of structural disorders of the reproductive tract that occur when the child is growing in the womb. Apparently, Judy's abnormalities were significant enough to draw the attention of her parents, and this would not work out well for Albert. After Judy's birth, Ermgard became terrified. They'd have another child with a physical handicap, and she allegedly did everything she could to avoid having sex with her husband. And this was extremely frustrating for Albert, whose psychiatrist would later determine had an abnormally voracious sexual appetite, like off the fucking chart sexual appetite, masturbating five or six times a day, and he wanted to have sex constantly. And does it officially make me old to read five or six times a day and think, man, that sounds like a lot of work. Is the sixth time actually fun? Uh, if you just answered yes, well, good for you. You're one of Lucifina's sexual warriors. You have the stamina of a wild horny stallion. Oh, but seriously, six times a day. And we're not talking about like here and there, like on some days, like a few times a year on some type of sex vacation. We're talking every day, day after day, every few hours, whenever you're awake, just, you know, just, just beating off or fucking. His dick must have looked like a, like a snake. Someone had ran over on the highway, just all mangled and abused. Uh, early 1956, 24-year-old Albert and his 23-year-old wife, Ermgard, moved to Chelsea. The prodigal son returns, or something like that. Uh, between 56 and 60, back in Chelsea, Albert would be arrested several times for breaking and entering. I wonder if he was ever arrested by uh, one of the same officers who'd busted him when he was a kid, or who'd busted his brothers or his dad. Say, hey, Al, nice to see you back home. Just busted your brother Joe last week. How's your dad? Fun, Frank. Each time he was arrested during these years, he'd only receive a suspended sentence. And I have to think uh, each time, excuse me, he wasn't just looking to steal stuff. He was looking to also molest or rape. I also wonder, did his dad ever stop by after he returned home? Maybe just show up, right? Try and rough up Albert or Ermgard, throw a little Judy around, maybe break some of their shit. Albert's your father showed up today and punched up baby guns and all and come slat and took a piss on the couch. <laughs> yeah, that's my pops, all right. Fun Frank, just spread a little mirth and merriment. Uh, no word on whether or not uh, Frank did stop by. Uh, 1960, Albert's second child with Ermgard, a son named Michael, is born. Doesn't have any physical handicaps, uh, much to his parents' relief. Maybe maybe kind of much to Ermgard's horror because uh, they started having more sex uh, after this. Uh, Albert was chasing her around six times a day like the dude was half rabbit. Uh, despite semi-frequent brushes with the law, Albert remained employed in the late 50s, early 60s. He worked as a press operator at American Built Right Rubber. Then he got a job in a shipyard. Then he was labor. Then he's employed as a construction maintenance worker after that. And based on several interviews, it seems like most of his coworkers seem to like him. One of his bosses characterized him as a good, decent family man and a good worker. Others thought of him as a very devoted family man and someone who treated his wife with 
love and tenderness. Uh, a lot of other people also saw him as being totally full of shit. Those people were correct. Uh, dude was a 100% a dirtbag. He was apparently quite the storyteller. He's described as being the classic one-upper. They like to have the best story. Be seen as the coolest dude in the room. Loved attention. Loved to be thought of as, uh, you know, the top dog. Cool guy. Uh, former Boston Police Commissioner Edmund McNamara would say DeSalvo's a blowhard. By 1960, although no one at the time knew it was him, uh, Albert was also, in addition to being a blowhard, gaining his first pervy criminal nickname, the Measuring Man. This is so weird. He's definitely not a cool dude. This is the oddest scam. A couple years before the Strangler murders began, kicking off somewhere around 1960, a series of strange sexual offenses were being committed in the Cambridge area. Cambridge, less than two miles from Chelsea. You cross the Tobin Bridge, formerly known as the Mystic River Bridge, to get from Chelsea to Boston, then you keep driving about two miles, you're in Cambridge. Uh, and in Cambridge 1960, women started reporting a dude in his late 20s knocking on the doors of their apartments. And when these young women would answer, women would answer, he would introduce himself saying, my name is Johnson. I work for a modeling agency. Your name was given to us by someone who thought you would make a good model. And this dude, of course, was Albert DeSalvo. And Albert would then go out of his way to assure these women that the modeling would not be nude, just tasteful stuff, just evening gowns and swimsuits. He'd pay them, uh, you know, they get paid $40 an hour for this modeling. Yeah, he'd, he'd, you know, then let them know he'd been sent to get their measurements and other information if they were interested in modeling. And if you don't already know, uh, you know, lady listeners, uh, modeling agents, legit ones, don't fucking do that. They don't come knocking on your door asking for measurements. Uh, tell that guy you need to talk things over with your husband, uh, you know, whether you're married or not, whether you're into dudes or not, then call me, shut the door, lock it, call the fucking police immediately. And if you have a giant, scary looking dude for a neighbor, preferably a dude with a gun handy, maybe call him to come over and let this motherfucker know he needs to leave the property immediately if you would prefer not to add some additional holes to his head. Number of women told Albert they were interested, inviting him in. He seemed like a nice enough guy, his charming, boyish smile. When he was finished taking their measurements, he would tell them that Mrs. Lewis from the agency would be contacting them soon if the measurements were suitable. Albert uh, also later claimed some of these women invited him into their beds to have sex, and maybe they did, or maybe he's full of shit. He was definitely full of shit about the modeling. There was never a call from Mrs. Lewis because she didn't exist. Neither did the modeling agency. And eventually some of these women, once they'd realized they'd been had, they'd been scammed, they would contact the police. Roughly a year after these reports started to trickle in, on March 17th, 1961, Cambridge police caught a man trying to break into a woman's house. Once they had him, not only did he confess to breaking and entering, but he also just randomly confessed to being the measuring man, like he was proud of it. This man, of course, you know, Albert DeSalvo again, uh, when asked why he perpetrated his modeling agency charade, he responded, I'm not good looking. I'm not educated, but I was able to put something over on some high class people. They were all college kids. I never had anything in my life and I outsmarted them. Interesting rationalization. He saw himself as the good guy, the smart guy in this situation for lying to women and tricking them into letting him grope them under the guise of getting modeling measurements. Also, it's so random. He didn't need to confess to being the measuring man. He wasn't a prime suspect in that case. Had he not confessed, he wouldn't have been caught for those crimes. But he wanted to let the police know that he had gotten away with it. He had, he had outsmarted people. He loved to brag. He wanted people to know he was smart. He was able to pull stuff off. Important to note that. You know, uh, he was uh, smart enough and, uh, you know, he wanted to let people know he's smart enough in tricking people. Because some, some think his desire to be seen as a clever criminal would later lead him to confess to the Boston Strangler murders that he may not have committed. Uh, the judge, ultimately sympathetic to DeSalvo's role as the father of two and the only bread earner in his home, uh, gave him a light sentence for his crimes, 18 months in prison. Then in April of 1962, DeSalvo released after serving 11 months uh, for good, having good behavior. If authorities only could have known what was going to happen in the following months, they probably would have tried to keep him locked up forever. Also, what kind of crazy arguments did he and Ermgard have once he came back home? Ah, but can you watch the kids tonight? Ah, oh, come on. You know I can. I'm, I'm here with the boys tonight. 
Are you owls? Are you hanging with the boys? Or are you going to measure some ladies? I did my time for that. Stop throwing stones, arm guard. You're not perfect. Yeah, okay. Sure, I talked some ladies into letting me measure their breasts and hips and stuff. But you, you also have done stuff. You, you burn a casserole a couple weeks ago, you know. Ugh. Uh, so just two months after he was released, the killings attributed to the Boston Strangler begin. Suspicious timing. June 14th, 1962 started out for most Bostonians like any other Thursday. NBC was preparing for Johnny Carson's late night TV deb- debut. Oh, I love watch- watching those old Carson clips, by the way. He was a great host. Uh, Fenway box seat was only three bucks. The Red Sox were ninth place. And then Anna E. Slessers, 55, was doing what she normally did, working for a church, enjoying some classical music and keeping to herself. Anna was a, as a yeah, Anna was a petite divorcee who looked years younger than her age. More than a decade earlier, she had fled Latvia with her son and daughter after the Soviet Union occupied it in 1944. She'd settled in her small apartment in a quiet, quiet, old-fashioned neighborhood in the Back Bay area of Boston. Her address was 77 Gainsborough Street, one of many brick townhouses that had been subdivided into small apartments to meet the needs of people with limited incomes, both students and retired people. Anna was a seamstress making about 60 bucks a week, and she lived on the third floor. And that evening, she just finished her dinner taking a quick bath before her son Juris arrived to pick her up for a Latvian memorial service at the church. They went to that evening. On her robe, Anna went into the bathroom, turned on the water, you know, listening to the inspiring strains of some opera record. Just before seven o'clock, Juris knocked at his mom's door. No answer. He tries the door. It's locked. He's annoyed. He hadn't wanted to take his mom to that church service in the first place. Now she's not coming to the door. He pounds on the door. Still no answer. He's starting to worry. Is his mom sick? Is she lying helpless on the floor inside? He throws his weight into the door, smashes it open on the second try, storms in, sees something far worse than anything he could have expected. Sees his mom, Anna, lying on the bathroom floor with the cord from her robe wrapped tightly around her neck. Juris calls the police and calls his sister in Maryland, telling his sister about their mom's tragic suicide. Uh, the police would quickly figure out it was not a suicide. It was a homicide. Gerald Frank in that book, The Boston Strangler, or in his book, The Boston Strangler, describes how homicide detectives James Mellon and John Driscoll found her. She lay outstretched, a fragile-appearing woman with brown-bobbed hair and thin mouth, lying on her back on a gray runner. She wore a blue taffeta housecoat with a red lining, but had been spread completely apart in the front so that her shoulders, or that, so that from shoulders down, she was nude. She lay grotesquely her head a few feet from the open bathroom door, her left leg stretched straight toward him, the other flung wide, almost at right angles, and bent at the knees so she was grossly exposed. The blue cloth cord of her housecoat had been knotted tightly around her neck, its ends turned up so that it might have been a bow uh, tied little girl fashion under her chin. Sorry for the pauses. The way like authors used to write sometimes, it's just like the rhythm. Anyway, throws me. Uh, the apartment had been ransacked or rather made to look that way as if it was a burglary. Anna's purse was lined open with its contents partially strewn on the floor. A wastebasket in the kitchen had been rummaged through and trash scattered across the floor. Drawers had been rifled through. Drawers left open in the bedroom dresser. Case of colored slides had been carefully placed, not dropped on the bedroom floor. Some have been going through all kinds of stuff. Uh, but a gold watch, other pieces of jewelry, easily visible and left untouched. Uh, so it wasn't a burglary. And Anna hadn't hanged herself, right? She'd been strangled with the cord of a robe, something she, not, she could not have done herself. No semen was found inside of her, but her vagina showed evidence of sexual assault with an unknown object, perhaps a soda bottle or something of that size. Police assumed that the crime had or may have had started out as a burglary. They theorized that the burglar then saw Anna in a robe, was overcome by the urge to sexually assault her, that he then killed her afterwards to avoid being recognized and caught. That theory still didn't answer why the jewelry remained, maybe after raping and killing her, 
Maybe the burglar panicked and fled, they thought. And only two weeks later, there would be another murder. June 28, 1962 was a Thursday on Commonwealth Avenue in the back bay. An elderly woman, Mary Mullen, 85 years old, found dead on her sofa in the apartment. Her apartment had been uh, broken into. Years later, DeSalva, or had, excuse me, had, had not been obviously broken into. Years later, DeSalva would tell investigators that he was in her apartment, that he did not strangle her, simply, that she simply died in his arms. The death certificate confirms the cause of death was a heart attack. Police speculated that Albert had broken into assault Mary and then Mary died of fright. Her story would not be linked to the Boston Strangler uh, murders until much later and only because of Albert DeSalvo's confession. The next two murders would occur on the same day and due to the way these women were killed, they would soon be linked to the murder of Anna Slessers. Uh, June 30th, 1962 was a Saturday. Nina Nichols, 68 years old, found murdered in her apartment at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue in the Brighton neighborhood of Boston. Nina found with her legs spread, house coat and slip pulled up to her waist. Tied tightly around her neck were two of her own nylon stockings with the ends tied again in a bow. She had also been sexually assaulted. She'd been bitten. And the time of her death was estimated to be around 5 p.m. While no semen was found in her vagina, it's thought a wine bottle had been used to penetrate her and some light traces of what they thought may have been semen was found on her thigh. Her apartment looked like it had been burglarized. Every drawer had been pulled open. Possessions lay scattered around wildly on the floor. And oddly enough, one open drawer revealed a set of sterling silver that had been untouched. There was also a few dollars in her purse, her expensive camera, uh, the watch on her wrist. So not a burglary. Police determined that though nothing had actually been taken, uh, the killer had gone through her address book and mail. Weird. Uh, like Anna Schlesers, Nina Nichols led a quiet life, a retired physiotherapist. She'd been widowed for two decades, had no male friends except for her brother-in-law. And she wasn't the only woman in the Boston area to be strangled that day. Earlier on the 30th, some 15 miles north of Boston, in the suburb of Lynn, Helen Blake was strangled with her own nylon stocking sometime between 8 and 10 a.m. The 65-year-old divorcee's brazier had been looped around her neck over the stockings and yet again tied in a bow. Like Nina, she'd been bitten. Both her vagina and anus had been lacerated. She was found lying face down, nude on her bed, with her legs spread apart. Again, traces of what appeared to be semen found on her thigh, none inside of her. Her apartment had been thoroughly ransacked. And this time, some items had actually been stolen. Two diamond rings Helen wore had been pulled from her fingers and taken. The killer tried unsuccessfully to open a metal strongbox and a footlocker. Police were alarmed now. Uh, Boston Police Commissioner Edmund McNamara orders that a warning be sent out to women in the Boston area to lock their doors, be wary of strangers. McNamara cancels all police vacations and transfers all detectives to the homicide department. Despite the similarity in these crimes, all these women uh, were sexually violated after they'd been murdered. The police still didn't think that the murders were necessarily the work of a single person. A thorough investigation of all known sex offenders and violent former mental patients begins. Police theorize that the killer attacked older women or killers uh, uh, out of hatred for his own mother. Uh, McNamara, who had been formerly working for the FBI, called the Bureau to ask them to hold a seminar for his 50 best detectives on sex crimes. The press is now alerted. People around Boston are told to lock their doors. Three strangulation murders uh, hadn't shown any signs of forced entry. Even with the warning out, the murders continue. Less than two months later, police find the body of Ida Erga, 75-year-old widow, in her apartment at Seven Grove Avenue in Boston's West End on August 21st. She died from manual strangulation two days before on August 19th. Police Sergeant James McDonald described how he found her. Upon entering the, the apartment, the officers observed the body of Ida Erga laying on her back on the living room floor wearing a light brown nightdress, which was torn, completely exposing her body. There was a white pillowcase knotted tightly around her neck. Her legs were spread approximately 
four to five feet from heel to heel, and her feet were propped up on individual chairs and a standard bed pillow, lest the cover was placed under her buttocks. It was an alarming parody of an uh, obstra, obstret, God, I had this word figured out right before the episode, but then it takes too long to get there. Obstetrical, obstetrical. There we go. It's like gynecological. God, fucking met these words. Uh, It was an alarming parody of an obstetrical position. Like going to the fucking doctor. I can say that word. Ida's body faced the front door of the apartment and was the first thing anyone saw when coming through the entrance. These last few details were withheld from the press. Dried blood covered her head, mouth, ears. She too had been sexually assaulted after death. And just like with the first strangulation murder, there was no sperm present, or at least none was found. Later, DeSalvo would describe to investigators how his attack on Ida had gone down. He said he knocked on her door, told her that he was there to do some work on the apartment. She told him straight up she didn't trust him. And she didn't want anyone she didn't know in her apartment. Rather than just push his way in, DeSalvo told her, all right, no worries. I'll come back tomorrow. As he walked down the stairs, she changed her mind, decided that he must not be too bad after all if he's willing to walk away. And she said, well, come on in. If only she would have trusted her first gut instinct. She walked Albert to her bedroom where he was supposed to look at a leak. When he when she turned her back to him, he put his arms around her back, began to strangle her. Later, an investigator would ask him why he'd chosen such an old woman to attack. And DeSalvo told him that, quote, attractiveness had nothing to do with it. She was a woman. That was enough. What an odd, chilling statement to make. Now the police thought they had a sexually motivated serial killer on the loose in Boston. They did think that these were the work of one man now. And a lot of people in the Boston area are starting to freak out just over two months' time. Four Boston area women have been strangled, sexually assaulted. The police have no suspects. The local newspapers publish advice to women living by themselves, including tips from Commissioner McNamara. One, make sure all doors are locked and if possible, have a safety lock put on doors. Check all windows to ascertain they are safely locked. Two, have a superintendent or janitor in building make sure entrance door is securely locked. Three, Let no one into an apartment until positive identification is established. Four, keep a handgun loaded if you have one. Buy and load one if you don't. If any solicitors or supposed servicemen show up for unscheduled appointments, shoot on sight, shoot to kill. Five, notify police department immediately if you see anyone in the neighborhood acting suspiciously. Six, remember remember the police department wants all information which may have a connection to any of those crimes. Thousands of women in Boston adopt these policies immediately, but sadly, thousands of others do not. Uh, within just 24 hours of Ida Erga's murder, the strangler strikes again. Oh, and before we move forward, uh, I made up number four. Newspapers can't publish shoot-to-kill orders uh, put out by, uh, you know, like for put out on shady-seeming repairmen. They were probably getting a little bit of trouble if you just killed some random repairman because the newspaper told you to. Uh, the day before Ida's body was found on August 20th, a Monday, Boston newspapers that morning referred to the strangler as the deranged killer who has brought chilling terror to the home of every Boston woman who lives alone. Jane Sullivan, a 67-year-old nurse, is killed in her apartment that day at 435 Columbia Road in Dorchester, across town from where Ida lived, but the police won't find her body until August 30th. Police found her on her knees in her bathtub with her feet up over the back of the tub, her head underneath the faucet. She too had been strangled by her own nylons, probably in the kitchen, bedroom, or hall where blood was found on the floors. She may have also been sexually assaulted, but the corpse was too badly decomposed to properly determine that. Uh, there were, there were, however, uh, blood stains on the handle of a broom, so that's not good. There was no sign of forcible entry, nor was the apartment ransacked, even though Jane's purse was found open. Panic now truly grips Boston. But then after Sullivan's murder, there are no attacks for three months, and the fear starts to lessen a bit. 
During those three months, police look at hundreds of possible suspects, but nothing comes of their investigation efforts except for a long list of people with solid alibis. Albert DeSalvo, the measuring man, still not even remotely on their radar. Before the murder spree continues, feels like now is as good a time as ever uh, to take a sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. 
One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for continuing to listen. I hope one or all of those deals appealed to you. Back to 1962 now. December 5th, 1962 is a Wednesday, and this day, fear of the Boston Strangler would be rekindled and greatly increased. The dead body of Sophie Clark, just 20 years old, found by two roommates. Uh, police determined she was murdered at approximately 2.30 p.m. The apartment Sophie the, uh, and, the, and the women shared was located at 315 Huntington Avenue in the Back Bay area, just a couple of blocks away from Anna Slesser's apartment. Later, DeSalva would also describe how this attack went down. He said he knocked on the yellow door of her apartment and that when Sophie answered the door, she didn't want to let him in at first. She said her two roommates were not home at the time. Then DeSalvo promised to set up modeling and photography work for her, nothing nude. He told her he'd pay her anywhere from $20 to $35 an hour. Kind of weird. I think weird how he was like $40 earlier and now he's like lowered the price on a fake fucking modeling job. Uh, apparently she let him in and then he says he seduced her. Uh, yeah, sure he did. That was his story. I don't necessarily buy it at all. He said when he tried to have sex with her, he noticed she was menstruating. Then he removed her sanitary napkin, looked through her bureau to find something to strangle her with. Um, or she had no interest in him and, overpower and he overpowered her from the very beginning or that. Uh, when investigators found her, Sophie lay nude with her legs spread wide apart in the living room, strangled by three of her own nylon stockings, which had been knotted and tied very tightly around her neck. Her half slip had been tied around her neck as well. There was evidence of sexual assault. This time, some semen was found on the rug near her body. Like with the other murders, the killer had sex with her after she was dead and left no semen inside of her. Uh, also, once again, just like uh, the other strangulation murders, thus far, no sign of forced entry. Her roommates were shocked by this because they knew Sophie to be cautious. She'd actually previously insisted on having a second lock put on their apartment door. She was so cautious. She even questioned friends that came to the door in the past before she let them in. Yet her killer somehow convinced her to allow him to enter. So maybe this dude really was a world-class smooth talker and bullshitter. This new murder baffles investigators. There have been a gap of three months between this Boston Strangler attack and the last and some very interesting differences. Uh, while all the other victims had been white, Sophie was black. Also, and I find this far more interesting, all the previous victims had been significantly older. While the youngest previous victim was 55, Sophie again only 20, 35 years younger, 55 years younger than victim Ida Erga. Uh, she also did not live alone as the previous victims had. Was this the work of the same killer? Very odd for a sexually motivated killer, but not unprecedented to have such a wide range of victims. Maybe Albert wasn't lying when he later told investigators, right? Attractiveness had nothing to do with it. She was a woman. That was enough. When police questioned the neighbors, Mrs. Marcella Luca, roughly 30 years old, mentioned that around 2.30 that afternoon, 
a man had knocked on her door and said that the super had sent him to see her about painting her apartment. He then told her that he'd have to fix her bathroom ceiling and then complimented her on her figure. Have you ever thought of modeling? He asked her. Luca put her finger to her lips and told him, my husband's sleeping in the next room. The man then became angry, said he had the wrong apartment and left in a hurry. Luca described him as being between 25 and 30 years old of average height with honey-colored hair, wearing a dark jacket and dark green trousers. Albert had just turned 31 a few months before, looked young for his age, was described to being of average height and weight. He would be known later to wear uh, you know, the green during his, his crimes. Uh, his hair, a lot darker than honey, though. but I guess he could have uh, you know, colored it. Just three weeks later, the strangler would strike again, December 31st, 1962, New Year's Eve. That year, it fell on a Monday. It was the coldest New Year's Eve in over 40 years, just four degrees below zero. 23-year-old Patricia Bissett's body would be discovered. She was the secretary for a Boston engineering firm and her boss, who hadn't seen her for a few days, was getting really worried about her, drove to her apartment to check on her, uh, drove to work to see if uh, she was there, couldn't find her in either, either place, and she doesn't show up at work. Uh, the next day when she's supposed to be, her boss returns to her apartment at 515 Park Drive in the Back Bay area, a few blocks from where Anna Slessers and Sophie Clark had been killed. Her apartment's locked, but with the help of the custodian, her boss manages to climb through a window into the apartment, finds Patricia lying face up in bed with the covers drawn up to her chin, looking like she's taking a nap. Underneath the covers, Patricia lay with several stockings knotted and interwoven with the blouse tied tightly around her neck. Naked from the breast down, and while no seam was found, there was evidence of recent sexual intercourse, and later investigators find Patricia was also in the early stages of pregnancy. And also, her rectum was damaged. The medical examiner, Dr. Michael Luongo, thought it was odd that Patricia was not only covered, but that her arms had been placed neatly along her sides, her legs placed together, almost as if the killer had tenderly arranged her body and had tenderly uh, drawn up the covers to hide her nakedness. Dr. Luongo, who at 46 conducted several thousand autopsies, had seen this type of, quote, compassionate murder setting before. He usually came upon it when a man had killed his wife or mistress and already remorseful a moment after the act, painstakingly rearranges her clothes, cleans up the room before turning himself into police. The police wondered also if she was killed by a lover. Patricia, they learned, had been having an affair. This might explain the signs of recent intercourse and the fact that she was one month pregnant. Could her lover have killed her? I guess maybe, but she was also strangled. The police wondered, could the strangler have been hiding in the closet while Patricia and her lover were together, waiting for the lover to leave before carrying out his insane compulsion? Seems like a stretch, but maybe. Whatever the exact details, the basic facts were that a 23-year-old woman had been strangled and sexually assaulted, decorated in the strangler's fashion. Her body found in her locked apartment, no signs of a break-in, again, happened in the strangler's area at the strangler's time. Just like with the other murders, the killer had also searched her apartment. Sure seemed like the work of the strangler. Even if it wasn't, uh, you know, maybe the work of a copycat. Would that make it any less scary? Absolutely not. Women still being raped and strangled in Boston. The police still have no idea who's doing it. Boston's fucking freaked out at this point. And then, and then the attacks again stopped for a little while, stopped for over two months. Just like before, the police used this kind of murder sabbatical to backtrack, look for some clues they might have missed. Anyone, all the victims uh, may have known, any place they might have visited or shopped at. Various creeps, nuts, and perverts are all checked with no significant results. And that is exactly how it's written in one of the sources, by the way, which I found very amusing. Creeps, nuts, and perverts were checked again as, as if these were three distinct groups of people. I picture them being brought in one after another for witness lineups, right? Maybe have that neighbor who talked to uh, the dude pretending to work for the modeling agency, uh, Mrs. Luca, Luca, uh, brought in to look at them. All right, boys, let's bring in those creeps. Miss Luca, take a good look at these creeps. Uh, do you recognize number one? The guy with a really greasy skin, wispy, peach fuzz mustache, and a comb over. 
A guy wearing the loose, dirty sweatpants. The guy with his hand clearly pushed through his uh, hole in the bottom of his pocket, obviously masturbating. Is it him? No? Okay. Uh, what about the guy with his hair pulled back into a ponytail? Looks like his uh, hair's about to rip his scalp off. The guy whose yellow teeth aren't just wearing sweaters. Uh, they're wearing winter pockets. The guy wearing a trench coat, sticking his tongue through two of his fingers and some type of cunnilingus imitation. Is it that creep? No? Any others? All right. Okay, boys, release those creeps. Let's bring in those nuts now. Get those nuts in here. Is it the guy spinning around on roller skates while barking like a dog, wearing a hat made up tinfoil, while waving an American flag? No? What about the guy wearing about ten different pairs of socks? Cotton socks, nylon socks, wool socks, sweat socks, uh, velvet socks, velvet elvis socks, so many socks. No, all right. all right, boys, let's get those nuts out of here. Let's bring in those perverts. Ma'am, is it the old Russian guy in the tracksuit, aggressively uh, waving his limp penis around? What's this big deal? So I have limp shame cock. So I show up in police lineup in the wrong country. 16 years before I start kill spree. I do it. <laughs> I bust a strangle guy. Uh, that is why no semen find inside. I jerk in corner. I bother no one. It's about time Chico made another cameo. Uh, Chikatilo made another cameo. It's been too long since that, since that creep stopped by. Was he a creep or? I guess he was a pervert. Was he, he's a creepy, nutty pervert. He was all of them. All right, I know there was a long deviation. Uh, when we left off, it was uh, after the December 31st, 1962 discovery of 23-year-old Patricia Bissett's murdered body. And there was a period of over two months. No one was strangled in Boston. Then on March 9th, 1963, I just still keep thinking about those lineups. Just fucking three groups. I don't know why it's so amusing to me. Uh, another murder victim is found 25 miles north of Boston and Lawrence, 68-year-old Mary Brown found on the floor of her apartment. She'd been raped, strangled, beaten about the head. Her breast had been stabbed with a kitchen fork. It was left in her chest. Uh, she'd been strangled. When he later confessed to Salvo to persuade authorities of his guilt would provide details about her kitchen faucet, which was brass, and her kitchen radio. Uh, he also got some key details wrong. When an investigator said that sheet you covered her with must have been bloody, Salvo replied, oh, was it? My God. But there was no bloody sheet. No sheet of any kind had anything to do with that crime scene. Uh, did he just forget or did he cave into some social pressure just told the officer what he thought the officer wanted to hear, you know, just following those leading questions. Or, you know, uh, did he, did someone else kill Mary? Uh, for the next murder, the Boston Strangler moved back to Boston. A little under two months later, on May 6, 1963, Beverly Sammons, a pretty 23-year-old college graduate, a recent graduate, Mrs. Choir practice at the Second Unitarian Church in Back Bay. A friend worried, goes to her apartment to check on her, opening it with a key she'd given him. When he opens the door, he sees her immediately. She's lying directly in front of him on a sofa bed, legs spread apart. Her hands been tied behind her with one of her scarves, nylon stocking again, uh, two handkerchiefs tied together, knotted around her neck, cloth over the bottom half of her face, under it, a second cloth had been stuffed into her mouth. It appeared obviously that Beverly had been strangled to death, uh, but when medical examiners inspected her body, it was discovered that was not the case. She'd in fact been killed by four stab wounds to her throat. She'd actually been stabbed 22 times. 18 of those stab wounds formed a uh, bullseye uh, kind of design on her left breast. Uh, the ligature around her neck was deemed decorative and it had been tied tightly, or it hadn't been, excuse me, tied tightly enough to strangle her. The bloody knife was found in the kitchen sink. Also, she had not been raped. Estimated she had been dead for approximately 48 to 72 hours, probably been killed between late Sunday evening, Monday morning. Beverly was studying to be an opera singer, had planned to try out for the Met in New York that year. Police speculated that because of her singing, she had developed very strong throat muscles that may have made strangulation more difficult and resulted in her stabbing. Uh, seems odd to me, but okay, maybe. Uh, interesting that her murder would be blamed on DeSalvo when the crime feels so different. I mean, if he did it, why was she stabbed so many times when the other victims weren't? Why was she not sexually violated like other victims? 
Why try and make it look like a strangulation after the fact? Feels like someone trying to pin a murder on the strangler from the perspective of the of this armchair investigator who's never worked in law enforcement, uh, let alone been a homicide detective. The police were now growing desperate to catch a killer. Public pressure to solve these crimes is immense. And since desperate times call for desperate measures, uh, the authorities do something desperate and they take a chance on a psychic. Yay! Someone put them in touch with an ad copywriter named Paul Gordon, who supposedly had special ESP powers. He claimed he knew who the strangler was, and what the strangler looked like. Paul began his description of the man who killed Anna Slessers. Uh, this background music feels fitting to me for this. I picture him as fairly tall, bony hands, pale white skin, red bony knuckles, his eyes hollow set. I was particularly struck by his eyes. His hair disturbed me a little because he has a habit of pushing back a little curl of his hair that falls on his forehead. He's got a tooth missing in the upper right front of his mouth. He's in a hospital or some kind of home. He's not confined, I know that, because I see him walking across a wide expanse of lawn. He can walk about, and he does a lot of sitting on a bench on the grounds. He has many problems. He used to beat up his mother cruelly. She was an idiotic, domineering woman and his two sisters. They live unhappy lives. The family comes from Maine or Vermont. He's terribly lonely. When he's in the city, I see him sleeping in cellars, but he likes to wander about the street watching women, wanting to get as close as possible to them. You see, the poor fellow is in a continual search for his mother. But he can't find her because, well, she's dead. Uh, yeah, okay. What the fuck is he talking about? Uh, the Strangler uh, lived in a hospital or some kind of home. Not helpful. I described just about everybody in Boston. Uh, bony hands and pale white skin. Well, you know, it is a city full of a lot of poor Irish people. Uh, again, doesn't narrow it down much. Sleeping in random cellars? Like some kind of cartoonish ghoul? Get out of here. Continually searching for his dead mom? Right? Okay, the, the killer's just a total maniac sleeping in cellars looking for his dead mom, but the police can't catch him? They had to have been so pissed they took a chance on this clown. If this guy really was a psychic, if he really did have important information regarding Anna Slessers, why didn't he contact the police? Why did he wait for the police to contact him? And actually, if he really had ESP powers... How would he not already be working full-time for law enforcement as their highest paid by far employee, continually solving difficult and important cases with his superhuman abilities? And the crazy thing about this to me is if he really was a psychic, why the fuck was he working as an ad copywriter? Hello? Is this Paul Gordon? Speaking. Paul, my name is Marie Anderson and you have to help me. My daughter, she's gone missing. Oh, God. You have to tell the police where she is before it's too late. Uh, I'm on it, Maria. Uh, soon. Call me back in a few minutes after uh, 5 p.m. I'll figure it all out. Right now, I have to finish a new radio jingle for Crane's Potato Chips. Actually, if you don't mind, wh what do you think of what I got so far? Just, just, give, just listen for a second. Your stomach is aching. Your hands, they are shaking. You feel like a drip. You've really taken a dip. Sounds like you need the world's tastiest chip. Crane's for your cravings. Cranes for your savings Just a nickel a bag Each way out of a drag Cranes chips, cranes chips Everyone flips for cranes the tastiest chips <laughs> Maria Maria, sounds sounds like you're crying are, are, are you crying because of the missing kid Or because you hate the new jingle Look, the sooner I nail this The sooner my boss lets me save your daughter It's fucking ridiculous No one who had that power would work as a fucking ad writer Drives me crazy uh, one of the detectives uh, brought Paul a number of photos of men who've been caught mugging or breaking and entering into buildings in the Back Bay area. 
Gordon identified one of them in Arnold Wallace as the strangler, a man who kind of matched the description Gordon had given earlier. Wallace was a 26-year-old uh, mental patient at Boston State Hospital with an IQ somewhere around 60. A few days earlier, he'd wandered away, and he was sleeping in the basement of apartment houses. And then the police determined that Gordon had been to that hospital where Arnold Wallace lived before he talked to the police. Weird that he would almost perfectly describe a dude he knew about who he'd just fucking seen. Almost like the whole thing was a hoax. Uh, Wallace didn't do it. He was never charged. Uh, Gordon then switched to the murder of Sophie Clark, and apparently he correctly described her apartment with some impressive detail. The killer, Gordon said, was a large, husky black man who Sophie knew. Louis Barnett, who fit Gordon's description, was a suspect in Sophie's murder. He had dated her once, and it was possible that she could have let him in the apartment, but he was never charged. Uh, Gordon said that the strangler would identify himself soon and confess that was kind of true. Uh, Gordon would ultimately prove, of course, not to help investigators at all when it came to catching the strangler. And he could have learned those other details through uh, newspaper articles. Uh, they would move on. The summer of 1963 passed quietly. Another wouldn't, uh, murder wouldn't uh, you know, happen for four months. On September 8th, 8, 1963, in Salem, 15 miles up the coast from Boston, Evelyn Corbin, a pretty 58-year-old divorcee who often passed herself off as more than a decade younger, found murder, murdered. Like 10 others before her, she'd been strangled with two of her nylon stockings. She lay across the bed, face up and nude. Her underpants had been stuffed into her mouth as a gag. Around the bed were lipstick-marked tissues that had traces of semen on them. Sperm found this time in her mouth, not in her vagina. Her locked apartment had been searched, but apparently, like with almost uh, all the victims, nothing was stolen. A tray of jewelry had been put on the floor. Her purse had been emptied onto the sofa. There was something in the apartment that the police hadn't seen before at other crime scenes. Outside her window in the fire escape was a fresh donut, which was not deposited or thrown there by anyone in the building. Apparently, uh, did the killer leave it? I don't know, maybe. Sadly, once again, no leads would come from another murder, and the rest of September, all of October, and most of November would pass without any more killings. And then on November 23rd, 1963, the day after John F. Kennedy's assassination, while so many Americans were glued to their television sets, especially in the Boston area where the president was from, Joanne Graff was being raped and murdered in her ransacked Lawrence apartment 30 miles northwest of the city. The conservative and religious 23-year-old industrial designer would be found by police two days later on November 25th. Neighbors would say she was a quiet girl. She was a Sunday school teacher, an artist who lived alone and kept to herself. She was found with two nylon stockings and a leotard tied an elaborate bow around her neck. Her blouse pushed up to her armpits. There were teeth marks on her left breast, the outside of her vagina, bloody and lacerated. Once again, no sign of forced entry into her apartment. Reports came in from neighbors about strange occurrences in the apartment building the morning before Joanne's death in the apartment down the hall. A woman had heard someone outside her door. Then she watched as a piece of paper slipped under her door, wiggling back and forth. And then suddenly the paper vanished and she heard footsteps. Uh, not creepy at all. Uh, what was the point of that paper? We'll never know. Uh, did the strangler write a note or something? Just, uh, just passing some little paper into the door. Uh, please let me in. Not the strangler. Just a nice guy looking to make new friends. Uh, 3.25 p.m. on November 23rd, the day of Joanne Graff's murder, a Northeastern University engineering student that lived above her heard footsteps in the hall. The student's wife had been concerned that someone had been sneaking around the hallways, so he went to the door and listened. When he heard a knock on the door of the apartment opposite his, the student opened his door to find a man of about 27 with pomaded hair, dressed in dark green slacks, those, those green slacks again, and a dark shirt and jacket. Does Joanne Graff live here? The man asked, mispronouncing, uh, oh, sorry, I was not even saying that how he said it. He said, does Joan Graff live here? The man asked, mispronouncing Joanne's name. The student told him that Joanne lived on the floor below. Moments later, he heard that door open and shut, or, you know, or some door. He assumed it was that door in the floor beneath him, and he assumed that Joanne had let the man in her apartment. 
poor bastard. I wonder if he felt guilty about that later. I mean, not his fault at all. Something happened to her, but still, I would probably feel terrible if I told some dude who turned out to be a fucking murderer where you know, one of his murder victims, you know, was, was living. Uh, 10 minutes later, a friend telephoned Joanne. There was no answer. A little over a month later came the 13th victim that DeSalvo would later confess to murdering. On January 24th, uh, 1964, a Saturday, two young women came home after work to their apartment on Charles Street in the Beacon Hill section of Boston. They are stunned to find their new roommate, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan, murdered. She'd been strangled to death, first with a dark stocking, then over the stocking, a pink silk scarf tied with a huge bow under her chin. Always like these bows and always multiple fabrics. Over that, another pink and white flowered scarf. Curiously, a bright Happy New Year card had been placed against her feet. She was found in a sitting position on the bed with her back against the headboard, thick liquid that looked like semen dripping from her mouth onto her exposed breasts, and a broomstick handle had been rammed three and a half inches into her vagina. Fuck. After news broke of Mary Sullivan's murder, panic over the strangler in Boston at an all-time high. The police still had no suspects. It was clear the women were continuing to let the killer or killers into their apartment. Forced entry, not part of the killer's MO. The police and media outlets urge women, please do not let anyone you do not know into your home. Keep the door locked at all times. A couple of weeks after the murder of Mary Sullivan, Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke took the investigation over. Brooke was no ordinary law enforcement type, nor was he an ordinary politician. He was a handsome, intelligent, polished professional. He was also the only African-American attorney general in the country at that time and a Republican in a solidly Democratic state. And he was taking a big political risk by jumping into the Strangler investigation. If the Strangler or Stranglers continued to kill and not be caught, now he'd take the blame. But he had a plan. Case spanned five police jurisdictions, making it difficult for police to coordinate their investigations. The group Brooke put together fixed that. Permanent staff members were assigned to the Strangler case. No information between the area's police departments would, would, would be withheld going forward because of petty jealousies or local feuds. Furthermore, Brooke's task force aimed to shut the newspapers up, which had only been scaring people and making them lose faith in the police in the months since the first attacks. Two reporters, Gene Cole and Loretta, Loretta McLaughlin, wrote in the Record American for months about the Boston Police Department's mistakes, you know, charging them with extreme inefficiency. To head up this task force, which was formerly called the Special Division of Crime Research and Detection, Brooks elected a close friend, Assistant Attorney General John S. Bottomley. Bottomley was a controversial choice because of his lack of experience in criminal law. However, as Bottomley supporters pointed out, he was exceptionally honest and enthusiastic. It was a non-traditional case, and Bottomley was a man of non-traditional methods. Bottomley's team consisted of Boston Police Department's Detective Philip DeNatalie, uh, Special Officer James Mellon, Metropolitan Police Officer Stephen Delaney, State Police Detective Lieutenant Andrew Tooney, Dr. Donald Kenefick uh, was the man who would lead the Medical Psychiatric Advisory Committee. Governor Peabody offered a $10,000 reward to any person furnishing information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person who had committed the murders of the 11 official victims now attributed to the Strangler. The Strangler Bureau, as the task force became known, had a lot to do. They had to collect, organize, and assimilate over 37,000 pages of material from the various police departments that had been involved in the case. Uh, the medical committee worked on developing a profile for the killer. Uh, there was an important difference, they thought, between the murders of the older women and those of the younger women. For that reason, they thought it was unlikely that one person was responsible for all the killings. In other words, there were copycats. Focusing on the killer who murdered the older women, Dr. Kenefick reported that the killer was at least 30 years old, probably a good deal older. He's neat, orderly, and punctual. He either works with his hands or has a hobby involving handiwork. He most probably is single, separated, or divorced. 
He would not impress the average observer as crazy. He has no close friends of either sex. Eight years before the FBI establishes the FBI's behavioral science unit, a Massachusetts psychiatrist is putting together a criminal profile. I found that pretty interesting. At Bottomley's suggestion, Brooke consented to a risky move consulting the second psychic of our story. Oh, boy. Peter Herko. So here's this son of a bitch. Peter Herko is a Dutchman, was known as a psychic detective or the telepathic detective by people who were fucking idiots. Uh, He'd supposedly helped officers search for clues in several famous cases, including the Manson family case. Born in Dartrick, Holland, In 1911, he immigrated to the United States in 1956, lived in L.A. for 25 years. Uh, Herkos claimed that he became a psychic in 1941. He's about 30 years old uh, after tumbling four stories off of a a ladder, fucking big-ass ladder, landing on his head. Uh Uh-huh. That's, I'm sure that happened. Some of us get dumber when we suffer a massive head injury. Some of us are left, you know, with lingering headaches or blurry vision. Uh, A lot of of people die when they land on their head after falling four fucking stories. I'd say almost everyone dies from something like that. And uh, almost everyone who doesn't ends up paralyzed. But this dude became a superhero. Okay. I don't believe he ever fell four stories and landed on his head. Right out of the gate, I think this guy's full of shit. Upon regaining consciousness four days after his fall, again, if it ever happened, Herco said he possessed the ability to see the future. <laughs> to exercise artistic and musical talents he had never exhibited before. And to trace missing persons by psychometric. It's hard to pronounce because it's not a real word. Psychometrizing, I guess. Or tuning into their psychic vibrations. Oh my God by touching their clothing or other personal possessions. He couldn't do any of that shit. He never helped solve the Manson case, uh, but the Strangler Bureau was desperate. Two private groups paid for Herco's services and expenses. I hope they didn't pay him too much. Uh, Herco's identified a suspect. The suspect was a shoe salesman with a history of mental illness whom the Strangler Bureau had already investigated and ruled out. There was no evidence whatsoever to link the shoe salesman with the murders. Uh, the Strangler Bureau's credibility suffered on account of Herco's, who would go on to get in trouble for impersonating an FBI agent at one point. Uh, This dirtbag would later find some commercial success, uh, however, appearing on the Johnny Carson show and writing several books. He agreed back in 1960, uh, also on an episode of a TV show called One Step Beyond to have his psychic abilities put to the test. Parapsychologist Charles Tart of the University of California Davis did test him and the test came back negative. A skeptic and investigator and professional fucking wackadoodle hunter, the legendary James Randi, modern day Houdini when it comes to debunking bullshitters, one of Canada's national treasures, Called Herco's out to be tested again. Herco refused, and uh, Randy called him a fraud. He was just another grief vampire, a cold reader like John Edwards and all those other medium hacks. Fucking hate those charlatans. Uh, yeah, really? You think you can maybe kind of see the future? Yeah, that you know things? Okay, fine. Offer up your services for free to help. And if it's proven time and time again that you can really prove things that you shouldn't be able to know, if you can prove psychic powers, awesome. Make that money. I would love for that to be true. I would love to uh, have proof that, that you know powers like that that science can't understand are real. But thus far, literally no one has ever done that. Uh, we, if I, we go over these claims of these types almost every week on the Patreon counterpart of Time Suck, The Secret Suck. We've covered about a hundred of these nuts so far, and they just never come off as credible. But a lot of them make money uh, because, you know, uh, people who can't think critically or choose to uh, not to just keep giving them money. <sighs> All right. Been a while since we checked in with uh, Fun Frank's favorite son, Albert DeSalvo. What's that Looney Tune been up to? Nothing good. On October 27th, 1964, he impersonated a motorist with car trouble while he attempted to enter a home in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. It's about 30 miles south of Boston, near the Rhode Island border. The owner of the home, future Brockton police chief, Richard Sproles, became very suspicious, ultimately grabbed his shotgun and shot at this son of a bitch. Nice! I got a nice Mossberg pump-action tactical 12-gauge sitting in my uh, gun cabinet at home, just waiting to shred some creep who wants to roll the dice and enter my house. Probably don't even need it. I also have two vicious, just so you know, 
just under 30 pound Australian Labradoodles that may or may not like to be held like babies. Little creatures who ask to be picked up and consoled by dad whenever they play too rough with one another. <laughs> Penny and Ginger Bell would for sure tear an intruder apart or at least bark from a, you know, a little while from a safe distance away and then hide in the basement. Uh, sadly, Sproles does not hit Albert. He escapes. Then later that same day, a newlywed, newly married woman, excuse me, lies in bed dozing just after her husband left for work. She hears a noise, opens her eyes to find a man in her room, a man who puts a knife to her throat and tells her, not a sound or I'll kill you. He stuffs her underwear in her mouth, ties her in a spread eagle position to the bedpost with her clothes, right? This is all very similar to some strangler crimes, kisses her, fondles her. Then he asks how to get out of the apartment after he's done. You be quiet for 10 minutes, he tells her. He apologizes and flees. It fucking uh, apologizes. That actually makes me angry. So ridiculous. This guy doesn't understand that you can't make certain things okay after saying, I'm sorry. Ah, sorry, I raped you. I gotta take off now. Doesn't quite cut it. Uh, during this assault, the woman gets a real good look at his face. Uh, a better look, I'm sure, than she wanted. Uh, her description of DeSalvo would be a break in the Strangler case the police have been waiting for. Uh, the police sketch looks familiar to investigators. The guy they're looking at looks like sketches of the measuring man from years ago. So on November 3rd, 1964, police bring DeSalvo to the station where the woman who was raped was able to observe him through a one-way mirror. She immediately identifies him, no doubt about it. She knows for certain this is a dude who raped her. He's charged, then released on $8,000 bail. Still denying it, he pleads innocent to charges of breaking and entering, assault and battery, confining, putting in fear, engaging in an unnatural and lascivious act. Uh, he has a hearing two weeks later. As a matter of routine, DeSalvo's photograph is uh, taken and then sent out uh, over six states to this teletype network. Within 36 hours, it brought detectives from Connecticut uh, contacting the police in Boston where similar assaults had taken place through the summer and autumn. In every instance, a man tying up women on their beds. A woman or a man who'd become known as the Green Man, Albert's second criminal nickname, because he almost wore green work pants. And green pants have come up a couple times in the stuck already. Uh, he would wear the uniform of a building maintenance worker sometimes. And he was an extremely active rapist. If the records were correct, on one day, May 6, 1964, between 9 a.m. and midday, he'd bound and assaulted four different women in four different Connecticut towns. Hamden, two hours from Boston. Meriden, less than 20 minutes from Hamden on the way back to Boston. New Haven, 30 minutes south of Meridian. And then Hartford, uh, 40 minutes back towards Boston from New Haven. Four rapes, four separate towns, one day. Acting on this new information, right? And, we, and that, you know, speaks to the salvo. We know about how, like, sexually active this dude is. Mr. Fucking six times a day, Jackrabbit. Acting on this new info, Boston police on November 5th descend on DeSalvo's home, a modest, neatly kept one-family house at the end of a dead-end street in Malden less than four miles from where he grew up in Chelsea. He's not home, so they wait. When DeSalvo shows up, uh, he sees a police car, attempts to reverse his car, drive off, but they block him in, seize him. He's brought again to Cambridge Police Headquarters where several victims from Connecticut are on hand to identify him. He begs to speak to his wife before he confesses. Uh, those you know, women do identify him. Yep, that's the guy. Ermgard and Albert's sister Irene come to the station. And for nearly an hour, he talks to them in the presence of three detectives. He breaks down in tears. He pleads with his wife, please, please, let me, be, let me be a man just this once. I've done some very bad things with women. I've broken into houses. I've used a gun, but it was a toy gun. I used a knife, but I never killed anybody. I'm tired of running. I want to get it off my chest. I need help. I want help. When they had me before, I didn't know how to ask for it. His wife, who'd suspected he'd been doing something, not surprised about his sexual assaults on women. She would later tell police about Albert being insatiable. Uh, she would tell police that he would want her in the morning. He'd want her again when he came home for lunch. He'd want her early in the evening after supper, again, before they fell asleep at night on the weekends. 
When he was home from the job, he now had an outside maintenance man. He would want her six times a day. Still not enough. When they would go out together, he would make suggestive remarks even in front of her to attractive women. Even Lucifina thinks this dude's way too horny. Clearly addicted to sex. Impossible to satisfy. Uh, She told Albert to tell the police everything. And he did. I wonder if she also felt relieved that he was arrested. So happy to be rid of him. Tired of that horn dog trying to fuck her constantly. It's like a fucking dog or something. Uh, In the following police interrogation, Albert admits to breaking into 400 apartments, committing almost as many rapes. He tells the police he'd assaulted some 300 women in a four-state area. If you knew the whole story, you wouldn't believe it, he told him. It'll all come out. You'll find out. Uh, DeSalva will earn the reputation later of being a huge exaggerator. So did he really attack that many women? Maybe, uh, maybe not. Uh, There definitely hadn't been that many reports of a rapist fitting his description committing all those crimes, but that doesn't mean he didn't do that. Most instances of rape do go unreported, according to Washington, D.C. based nonprofit Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN. Uh, Only 23% of rapes are reported. And that's based on a Bureau of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey conducted in 2017, which analyzed numbers from 2010 to 2016. Back in 1964, you know, I think you can make the argument that probably a lot more rapes went unreported since there was even more social stigma associated with it. Uh, the The first rape crisis centers in America wouldn't even be established until the 1970s. Uh, DeSalvo, after his confession, uh, was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital, 30 miles south of Boston, for observation. The police still didn't think they had the strangler since his confession didn't include murder, but they wanted a psychiatrist to examine him to see if any other crimes came up. Shortly after DeSalvo arrived at Bridgewater, another dirtbag named George Nasser became an inmate. He'll play an interesting role in the Boston Strangler story. Nasser had been charged with the vicious execution-style murder of a gas station attendant and was serving a life sentence, but with the possibility of parole. Uh, Nasser, no ordinary thug. His IQ approached genius level. His ability to manipulate people, remarkable and noted by authorities. While in prison for an earlier murder, he'd studied Russian and other subjects. Uh, Nasser had gone to prison for the first time for shooting a shop owner to death during a robbery when he was a sophomore in high school, back in 1948. He then became a model prisoner, claimed to have found God, as uh, inmates often do, through his friendship with the chaplain, Unitarian minister William Moores. And through the efforts of Moores, he was paroled in 13, uh, he was paroled 13 years into his sentence in early 1961. And the Boston Strangler stains began the following year. Uh, Nasser put in the same ward as DeSalvo, soon became his confidant. And Nasser later claimed that DeSalvo told him that he was the Boston Strangler. However, he also said that DeSalvo desperately wanted to be famous. So was he the Strangler or did he just want the notoriety that went along with that? Uh, Nasser will play a huge role again in the rest of the story, as will his attorney, F. Lee Bailey. Francis Lee Bailey, born in 1933 in Waltham, Massachusetts, would become one of America's most famous criminal defenders. He got his start defending George Elderly, a doctor charged with murdering his wife, a doctor who was acquitted. Soon thereafter, Bailey won a reversal of the conviction of another doctor, Sam Shepard, also accused of murdering his wife. Uh, Bailey would go on to become involved in a number of high-profile cases. This is actually the third of his cases that have showed up in the Suckverse. Uh, He was part of O.J. Simpson's defense team. He defended Patty Hearst. And in March 1965, DeSalvo's wife, Ermgard, who had already left town, was already staying with her sister in Denver, gets a call from F. Lee Bailey, who says he's now Albert's attorney. He tells her to assume a different name, leave the area with her kids, go into hiding. He says something big is going to blow up about Albert. It'll be on the front pages of every newspaper in 24 hours. I'm flying out to see you tomorrow so I can help you myself. The next day, Ermgard is told by authorities that Albert had confessed to being the strangler. Disbelieving, she hangs up the phone. She's not surprised that her husband's a rapist, but she didn't think he could be the strangler. He had a voracious appetite for sex, but she didn't think he was capable of murder. Uh, Had she not met Fun Frank? 
this family. Uh, she thought his confession was another one of Albert's attempts to make himself seem important. She wondered if some newspaper was offering him money, and she may have been right. Albert DeSalvo had been thinking about money for a while. Some months earlier, just before Albert was sent to Bridgewater, following his rape's arrest, he met with his former lawyer, John uh, as Gerson, and Albert had asked him, what would you do if someone gave you the biggest story of the century? And the guy said, do you mean this Boston Strangler? And Albert said, yeah. And his lawyer said, are you mixed up in all of them, Albert? Did you do some of them? All of them, Albert admitted. Uh, as Gerson wasn't quite sure what to do with that information and seriously considered the possibility that Albert was insane. Uh, but he did begin a quiet inquiry. Meanwhile, Albert began uh, became more and more sure that the story of him being the strangler would bring in a lot of money. At Bridgewater, Albert and George Nasser discussed the reward money for information leading to the conviction of the Boston Strangler. For some reason, these two mistakenly assumed that $10,000 would be paid for each victim of the strangler, or you know, which would give them a total of $110,000 for information about 11 official victims. And that was not true. The reward was for 10 grand for information that would lead to the arrest of the guy who'd raped and killed any of those women, but you didn't get to fucking name the same guy 11 times and have it add up to 110,000. Maybe Nasser was not almost a genius. Maybe he cheated on that IQ test or something. Uh, they thought if Nasser turned him in and DeSalvo confessed, they could work out a deal to split the money. DeSalvo thought there was a good chance he could convince the shrinks that he was insane, spend the rest of his life in a mental hospital instead of prison, riding out life in a cushy mental hospital while simultaneously providing his family uh, a good deal of money seemed like a nice deal for him. He assumed that, uh, you know, even if he didn't confess to any murders, he was probably going to spend the rest of his life in prison anyway due to the sheer volume of rapes he confessed to. On March 6, 1965, F. Lee Bailey goes to visit Albert. Not only does Albert confess to the murders of the 11 official Strangler victims, he also admits to killing two additional women, Mary Brown and Mary Mullen, which is how the Strangler body count grew to 13, if you were confused for a moment there. Uh, Bailey asked DeSalvo what he wanted Bailey to do, and DeSalvo replied, I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life locked up somewhere. I just hope it's a hospital and not a hole like this. But if I could tell my story to somebody who could write it, maybe I could make some money for my family. Bailey thought that there must be some way to allow him to confess without setting him up for execution. Uh, but before that, Bailey wanted to determine if his client really was guilty without putting DeSalvo in legal jeopardy. Bailey called Lieutenant John Donovan, Boston's chief of homicide, suggested that he might have a suspect for him. But first, he wanted Donovan to provide him with some questions to ask the suspect that it would help determine if he was real or not. Bailey then went to visit DeSalvo a second time with these questions. And DeSalvo mentioned that Detective Denatalie from the Attorney General Strangler Bureau had taken a sudden interest in him, had come to take his palm print the day before. So now Bailey thinks, I got to work fast if I'm going to protect my client. At the interview, Bailey becomes certain that Albert DeSalvo is the Boston Strangler. Why? Because DeSalvo remembered extraordinary details regarding numerous Strangler cases when he asked him these questions. Bailey called Lieutenant Donovan and his colleague, Lieutenant Sherry, to his office, uh, had them listen to a recording of Bailey's interview with DeSalvo, uh, with, with Bailey changing the recording speed to disguise DeSalvo's voice. When DeSalvo describes the murder of Sophie Clark, he names a brand of cigarettes that he'd knocked to the floor when he went through Sophie's drawers. Hearing this, Detective Sherry grabbed his briefcase, pulled out a photo that showed those cigarettes exactly as DeSalvo had described them. Boston Strangler Bureau suddenly very hopeful had they just finally found their man. Detectives began to interview DeSalvo and take his confessions. Months later, on September 29th, 1965, DeSalvo's interrogation is completed. More than 50 hours of tapes, more than 2,000 pages of transcription later, detectives are positive that Albert DeSalvo is the Boston Strangler. Details piled upon, piled upon details. Uh, as DeSalvo recalled the career of the Strangler murder by murder, he knew there was a notebook under the bed of victim number eight, Beverly Sammons. He knew that Christmas bells were attached to Patricia Bissett's door. 
He drew accurate floor plans of various victims' apartments. Uh, he said he'd taken a raincoat from Anna Slesser's apartment to wear over his T-shirt because he'd taken off his bloodstained shirt and jacket. Detectives found that Mrs. Slesser's had bought two identical coats and given one to a relative. They showed the duplicate to DeSalvo, along with 14 other raincoats tailored in different styles, and DeSalvo correctly, uh, quickly and correctly picked the right one. He even described additional attacks that had not resulted in murders. He talked his way into a Danish girl's apartment, had his arm around her neck, when he suddenly looked in a large wall mirror. He was about to kill her, and then seeing himself about to kill, he was horrified at his reflection. He relaxed the pressure that he had on her neck, started crying, said he was sorry, begged her not to call the police, said if his mom found out, uh, she'd cut off his allowance. It was a fucking weird thing. Uh, he wouldn't be able to finish college, and the young woman never reported the incident. But then after this confession, detectives tracked her down and she remembered the incident vividly and confirmed DeSalvo's story. Everything he'd said was true. Uh, there was no doubt now in the minds of homicide investigators, Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. And yet he would never be charged with any of the murders. He would instead go to trial for the green man, uh, the green man armed robbery and sexual assaults. Why? Lack of evidence outside of his confessions. There actually wasn't one shred of physical evidence that connected DeSalvo to any of the Strangler crime scenes, at least not any evidence, uh, you know, useful at the time before DNA uh, analyzing became a thing. Plus, there was evidence left at the crime scenes that did not match what investigators knew about DeSalvo, like the Salem brand cigarette butts that were found on an ashtray near Mary Sullivan's bed and in Sophie, Sophie Clark's toilet bowl. Those cigarettes weren't believed to have belonged to the victims, and Albert didn't smoke, and they were thought for a little while to belong to the, the real killer. To add even more doubt, no eyewitnesses could place him at or near the crime scenes. Albert had a relatively memorable face, particularly because of his prominent, uh, described as a beak-like nose, and the strangler or stranglers were seen by a number of eyewitnesses. One of the eyewitnesses was Kenneth Rowe, that Northwestern University engineering student who lived on the floor above Joanne Graff's apartment. Right, He spoke to the stranger. You know, was looking for her apartment just before she was killed. And when Roe was shown a photo of Albert, he did not recognize him as the man looking for Joanne. Also, Jules Venz, who ran Martin's Tavern near Joanne Graff's apartment in Lawrence, did not identify DeSalvo as the man who dressed identically to the man Roe had seen, had come into the tavern nervous and agitated as though someone were following him. Eileen O'Neill saw a man standing in victim Mary Sullivan's bathroom window around the time of her death, and that man was not Albert. Marcella Luca. We talked about her. She lived in the same apartment building as Sophie Clark, the woman who had an encounter with a man uh, calling himself Mr. Thompson, said he was working for the modeling agency who lied, you know, or no, no actually didn't say he was working for the modeling agency. He said he would come to her uh, apartment to paint and commented on her figure. Uh, when she sketched a portrait for the police, it showed a delicately featured young man with a long, narrow face, thin nose, point, pointed chin, large almond-shaped eyes, looked nothing like DeSalvo. When Albert began confessing to the stranglings, Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley rounded up Mrs. Lucal, Luca and, and Gertrude Gruen, a woman who'd survived an encounter with the Strangler so that they could secretly view Albert in prison, or at least I guess a woman who uh, survived an encounter with who they thought was a Strangler, and neither of those women identified Albert DeSalvo, but they did, both of them, identify George Nasser. Local was convinced Nasser was Mr. Thompson. He resembled the man in every way but one, the color of his hair. Mr. Thompson had honey-colored hair, as she previously told detectives. Nasser's hair was black. Maybe he dyed it. Uh, he didn't admit to that, but uh, why would he? Right, he had a chance of getting out of prison someday on parole. Uh, the big question investigators now face was, if witnesses didn't think Albert was a strangler, how did DeSalvo, a man of average or less than average intelligence, convincingly absorb so many details about the victims in their apartments? Maybe because he had an exceptional memory. Dr. Ames Roby of Stoneham, a forensic psychiatrist, would testify that Albert had absolute, complete, 100% total photographic recall. 
Roby ran several tests on Albert's memory. For one test, he invited him into a staff meeting of eight people at Bridgewater. Albert walked in, looked around, walked out. The next day, Roby brought him back in, and the eight staffers were wearing different clothes and now sitting in different positions. Roby asked Albert to describe how the group appeared the day before, and he did so perfectly. Very impressive. On a lot of days, I couldn't accurately tell you what I had for lunch the day before. Uh, but a good memory doesn't answer the question of how did Albert find out about the crime details in the first fucking place if he wasn't the strangler? Where did he get those details? Well, possibly from newspaper reports. The newspaper accounts were extraordinarily detailed. The Record American, for example, had printed a chart along with the victim's photos called the Facts on Reporter Strangle Worksheet. Uh, the chart was a summary of all the important details of each crime what the victims were wearing, their hobbies, affiliations, more. In his confession, DeSalvo mentioned the few bits of inaccurate information that the charter contained that the police had intentionally fed journalists as well as accurate information. So a little, little fishy. Uh, make, makes it look like he did just read those papers and absorb those details. Also, there were a couple of leaks that could have made their way to Albert. Leaks by law enforcement agencies, particularly the Strangler Bureau, which was criticized for being lax with accumulated material, and the Suffolk County Medical Examiner, who allegedly held a number of unauthorized press conferences in which he freely distributed information about the victim autopsies uh, circulated through Boston, making the story more tantalizing, providing more details someone like DeSalvo could have read and memorized. And Albert for sure was a burglar. He'd broken into many of the apartment buildings in which Strangler victims were murdered. It's possible he could have visited some of the units where women were killed after their murders. And it appears due to police being so eager to wrap up the investigation and call it a success that DeSalvo had been frequently fed information both deliberately and accidentally to help make his confessions much more convincing. And finally, George Nasser. He could have been another source of information. Some still think Nasser committed some of the Boston Strangler murders. Nasser apparently is still alive at the age of 88 despite suffering from terminal cancer for at least two years. And he's uh, incarcerated at the Massachusetts Correctional Institution in Shirley, a medium security prison right now. And some think he fed DeSalvo crime details that DeSalvo then memorized. Most experts never saw the stranglings as the work of one individual. The modus operandi was not identical, right? The victims uh, as a group, dissimilar. Anyone who looked at the victims could see the difference between the relatively delicate killing of Patricia Bissett, whose murderer tucked her into bed, and the ghastly homicidal violation inflicted on Mary Sullivan, whose killer's intent was not just to degrade his victim by shoving a broom handle into her vagina, but to taunt the discoverer of her corpse by placing a fucking greeting card against her foot. Some were stabbed, some were sexually assaulted, some were posed, some were not. Serial killers, as we've learned, uh, you know, covering many of, them, many of them here on Time Suck, usually tend to stick to a particular kind of victim and MO. On January 10th, 1967, Albert DeSalvo is tried in court on the Green Man charges, not the murders. His trial will only last a little over a week. His attorney, Bailey, tries to use the Strangler killings to get him off. He tries to use DeSalvo's confession to the Boston Strangler murders to show that DeSalvo was insane. But it wouldn't work. There was just too many green vic, uh, green man victims who'd identified DeSalvo as uh, the rapist in addition to his confessions. <laughs> and sorry, I got hung up for a second there. Every time I see green man, I, I had to like recheck it when I was putting the notes together and make sure that I was like, what's he called that? Because I kept thinking of the fucking blue man group for some reason. <laughs> and I pictured like this lineup where DeSalvo is like completely painted in green, like one of the blue man members. It's like, that's a guy, the green guy. For sure, I remember that green guy anywhere. Anyway, if, if, if you notice, like, why does he keep kind of pausing around green man? Well, that's why. Uh, but yeah, so it wouldn't work. You know, there was too many green man uh, victims who could identify uh, DeSalvo as their rapist in addition to his confession. So on January 18th, 1967, 35-year-old Albert DeSalvo found sane, found guilty by an all-male jury on 10 counts of sexual assault and burglary, sentenced to life imprisonment. 
less than a month later. This is ridiculous. Right when most in Boston thought they could finally rest easy regarding the Strangler killings, whether or not DeSalvo was officially charged with them, killings that stopped since his arrest on February 25th, uh, you know, 1964, Albert escapes from Bridgewater with two fellow inmates triggering a full-scale manhunt. What a colossal fuck-up. This is a fuck-up on par with Ted Bundy's 1977 escape in Colorado uh, or on par with the much more recent Jeffrey Epstein committing uh, suicide while waiting for his trial. The man thought to be the most notorious Boston serial killer of the 20th century fucking escapes shortly after being incarcerated for life. Man, somebody or some people got a serious ass chewing that day. I'm guessing a, a job or a few jobs were lost. Time traveling Karen from the Alexander the Great Sock a few weeks ago would be pissed. Are you serious? Oh my God. Fucking what? I am so sick of locking my door and living in fear. I can't even go buy mace or pepper spray because it's 1967. No one's even selling that shit yet. Stupid assholes. I hate 1967. I want the badge number of whoever let that rapist out. And I want it now. I want to talk to the police chief, uh, the mayor, the governor, all of them. Right? Fucking I, I want their jobs. I want to talk to the president. Give me the president. Get your hands off me. Stop touching me, you perv. Oh, you're going to measure me, you skeevy fuck? You probably let Albert out on purpose because it's 1967. All you men are probably rapists. You misogynistic cesspools. Ugh. Uh, sources don't say who screwed up to let this clown escape. A note was found in DeSalvo's bunk after he escaped, addressed to the superintendent. In it, DeSalvo stated he had escaped to focus attention on the conditions in the hospital that he didn't care for and his own plight. <laughs> and then three days after his escape, this stupid son of a bitch calls his lawyer to turn himself in. His lawyer then sent the police to rearrest him in Lynn, Massachusetts. He escaped a life sentence, but then never even leaves Massachusetts. Man, fun Frank must have been so disappointed. He thought he'd raised better criminals than that. Uh, following his escape, DeSalvo transferred to the maximum security MCI Walpole State Prison, now known as the Massachusetts Correctional Institution in uh, Cedar Junction. And there he recants his early confession of being the Boston Strangler. But then after that, he writes a creepy poem where he does seem to confess to being the killer. Or does he just confess in this poem to knowing who the stranger was? I don't know. It's a little confusing. Here's that poem uh, set to some music that I feel gives it the uh, appropriate emotional weight. Here's the story of the strangler yet untold. The man who claims he murdered 13 women, young and old. The elusive strangler, there he goes. Where his wanderlust sends him, no one knows. He struck within the light of day, leaving not one clue astray. Young and old, their lips are sealed. Their secret of death never revealed. Even though he is sick in mind, he's much too clever for the police to find. To reveal his secret will bring him fame, but burden his family with unwanted shame. Today he sits in a prison cell. Deep inside, only a secret he can tell. People everywhere are still in doubt. Is the strangler in prison or roaming about? Okay, first that music obviously was not the right choice to add to the emotional weight of that poem. I just wanted to give you a nice little what the fuck is happening moment. Ah, that really cracked me up earlier. Hopefully it's funny to you guys. Also, who writes a poem about a series of rapes and murders everyone thinks they've committed? That's just so especially deranged. Uh, just over six years later, on November 25th, 1973, now 42-year-old DeSalvo telephones Dr. Ames Roby, asks him to meet with him. It's urgent. Has to come quick. DeSalvo sounds frightened. Roby promises to meet with him the next morning. About a week before, DeSalvo had asked to be placed in the infirmary under special watch. He told Roby he was going to tell him finally who the strangler really was and the whole story behind it. But then the following morning, November 26, hours before he set to meet with Roby, Albert is stabbed to death in his cell 
in the infirmary at Walpole State Prison by another inmate, Robert Wilson. Good job, Wilson! Uh, Wilson associated with the Winter Hill Gang, a structured confederation of Boston-area organized crime figures predominantly of Irish and Italian descent, right, led by the famous organized crime figure Whitey Bulger, uh, portrayed by Johnny Depp in the fantastic movie Black Mass, by the way, uh, tried for DeSalvo's murder. Uh, the trial ended in a hung jury. Good. F. Lee Bailey later claimed that DeSalvo was killed not because he was about to rat on the real strangler, but because he'd been selling amphetamines in prison for less than the inmate-enforced syndicate price. He'd apparently been warned once before by gang members to stop selling that shit, didn't listen, and he died. Prison officials believed it was a drug-related murder as well. Uh, we'll never know if DeSalvo actually had new information about the Strangler case to give to Dr. Roby or if he was just trying to figure out how to keep from being killed by some organized crime guys who wanted him dead. DeSalvo died without having ever been charged or found guilty of the strangulation murders of 11 women plus the two additional murders he confessed to. But then, many years later, on July 11th, 2013, after over a decade of multiple DNA examinations, Suffolk District Attorney Daniel Conley says that advances in DNA technology have allowed investigators to link DeSalvo conclusively to Sullivan's killing. Conley said that the DNA produced a familial match with DeSalvo, and he expected an exact match once DeSalvo's remains were re-exhumed. That did happen. Eight days later, on July 19, 2013, Suffolk County DA Daniel Conley, Attorney General Martha Coakley, and Boston Police Commissioner Edward F. Davis announced that the DNA test proved DeSalvo was the source of seminal fluid recovered at the scene of Sullivan's 1964 murder. He definitely strangled and killed at least one of those women. What about the rest? It seems as if not enough semen, or in some cases, no semen was recovered, you know, uh, from the other crime scenes. So we'll probably never for sure know how many other victims he was responsible for. And that takes us out of this week's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Uh, the period beginning with the death of Anna Slessers, 1962, and with that of Mary Sullivan in 1964, not a great time for... Can you imagine how annoying that would be if I did every fucking episode? Just that constantly in the background. How long would you last? Five minutes? Ten minutes? No matter, no matter how much you like the topic, if it was just this in the background. <laughs> By the way, this is going to be in your head for uh, forever. You're never going to get that out. Uh, the period beginning with the death of Anna Slessers in 1962 and ending with that of Mary Sullivan in 1964, not a great time for the Boston Police Department and its brand new commissioner, Edmund McNamara. Despite the best efforts of McNamara and his detectives, not a single one of the nine homicides committed within their jurisdiction could be solved. It would take 11 women killed between June 14th, 1962 and July 1964 to lead investigators to DeSalvo. The number would increase to 13 when he confessed to two more. Each of the original, original 11 victims raped and strangled, one victim stabbed. Six of the victims between the ages of 55 and 75. Two possible additional victims were 85 and, eight and 69 years of age. The remaining five victims considerably younger, ranging in age from 19 to 23. Ultimately, very likely that there were several killers. And only one of them ended up definitely being sent to prison where he himself would be murdered. If DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler, why did he claim he was? Well, first, maybe because his famous attorney, F. Lee Bailey, in whom he had complete faith, affirmed DeSalvo's belief that he wouldn't he would not get the death penalty. Uh, Bailey and DeSalvo believed that DeSalvo would be declared insane, allowed to ride out life in a mental hospital. That didn't happen, but they thought it would. Second, DeSalvo was convinced that the sale of his life story and confession would make him a great deal of money, which could be given to his wife and kids since he could no longer take care of them. And he hatched a poorly thought out plot with George Nasser, who may have been one of the other killers to get that reward money and split it. Third, in branding himself a serial killer, Albert would become world famous, which was something apparently he desired very much. 
fun Frank's son wanted to be famous or infamous uh, for the absolute worst reasons. Reminds me of a lot of reality TV stars, actually. This whole thing about this obsession with fame. You know, people who aren't rapists or murderers, I know, but arguably uh, are pretty shitty meat sacks who gain huge online followings and whose shows score massive ratings. People who are are modern celebrities. I think of the entire cast of Jersey Shore, many of the Kardashians, Paris Hilton, Mama June from Honey Boo Boo, so many others. People that are, are or have been famous, but not because they're noble, inspirational people, uh, not because they're people I'd like, to my, I'd, my, I'd like my kids, excuse me, to strive to be. No, because they're just willing to be trashy as fuck and preposterously ignorant on camera. Just no shame, just whatever. Awesome. I don't get it. I'm always looking for new podcast listeners. Uh, I'm always looking for new people to find my stand-up, but not because I give a fuck about fame. I just want people to enjoy what, what I do. Makes me happy to put smiles on strangers' faces to hear, uh, you know, I like what you did there. Uh, that was good. Fun to try and grow my business. I feel like I have more common with the dude or dudette who runs a pizza shop down the street than I do with someone who wants to be famous. I want to be famous. I want to be a star. Fuck fame. Seems like such a big hassle. And to be famous for rape and murder, how just gross, how pathetic. All right, there's no shame in living a good, decent life and dying in obscurity. Just because the world doesn't know your story doesn't mean it wasn't a great fucking story. I've met famous people I'd never want to have a drink with and a lot of non-famous people I've loved grabbing drinks with. So fuck fame and fuck Albert Salvo. He may not have committed all the Boston Strangler murders, but he did commit at least one and he raped many. He's a huge piece of shit. I'm glad someone killed him in prison. DeSalvo's killer, Robert Wilson, may have also been a complete uh, piece of shit. I couldn't locate his arrest record, but he did at least one thing right in my book. Now let's take uh, one more look back at the Boston Strangler. Well, actually, that's not true. Let's take four more looks back and one look forward at Albert DeSalvo in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Albert DeSalvo's confession to being the Boston Strangler even if he ultimately only killed one of the victims, was light at the end of the tunnel, a long, dark tunnel for Boston's law enforcement who've been searching for the killer for years. Wow, searching for the killer for, 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 for quite some time, for many months, but he may not have committed all the murders. Uh, the Strangler Bureau, as it was known, may have been so desperate to have the public believe the Strangler was behind bars that they let slip, accidentally or on purpose, details about the case that Albert could and would use in his confession. Uh, number two, the Strangler murders were gruesome, uh, murders that shook many in Boston to their cores. The newspaper reporting on the vulgar poses the women's bodies were found and how they'd been sexually assaulted, how their own clothing had been used to kill them, how they'd been killed in their own homes. It freaked people across the Boston area out. The wide range of victim ages only caused more terror and left no woman, woman feeling safe. Number three, the Salvo hoped he could make a lot of money off the notoriety that would come with being the Boston Strangler. And he may have been the Strangler. Just like we don't know for sure uh, that he committed the other killings, we don't know for sure he didn't. We do know he never got that money. He died broke and in prison, convicted of 10 rapes. His wife and kids never got that money. Uh, they did escape the scrutiny, thank God, that came with being associated with such a piece of shit by quickly changing their names and leaving the area. Number four, while DeSalvo may not have been the Boston Strangler, he did for sure earn two other horrible nicknames in terrible ways. He was the rapist known as the Green Man and just a weird, creepy perv known as the Measuring Man before that. A dude who graduated from going door to door, pretended to be a talent scout for some modeling agency that didn't exist, taking women's measurements. And he went to a guy who broke into women's homes, binding them and raping them. Number five, new info, 1971. Texas politician Tom Moore Jr. referenced the Boston Strangler in a way that I got to say is fucking hilarious to me. Tom was serving as a member of the Texas House of Representatives. He decided to put together a practical joke for April Fool's Day. 
He'd claim that most of his fellow representatives didn't bother to even read much of the legislation they were passing, they were voting on. So he decided to embarrass them by sneaking in legislation commending the Boston Strangler, asking for Texas to recognize Albert DeSalvo for his outstanding contributions to society. An excerpt reads, an excerpt reads, this compassionate gentleman's dedication and devotion to his work has enabled the weak and the lonely throughout the nation to achieve and maintain a new degree of concern for their future. He has been officially recognized by the state of Massachusetts for his noted activities and unconventional techniques involving population control and applied psychology. And it passed unanimously. Ah, the Boston Strangler, champion of population control. Uh, Moore withdrew this legislation once he'd made his point. Uh, he died on April 16, 2017 at the age of 98 after living what I imagine was a uh, hilarious and, and long life. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Uh, the Boston Strangler has been sucked. Glad he and I have very little in common. I think even on my worst days, I can still feel like, you know what? I'm, I'm way better than Albert DeSalvo was. I hope you can think that too. If you can't, well, that's <laughs> uh, unfortunate. That's, uh, you might want to turn yourself in. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fax, Sorceress Evans, Bidelixer, Logan and Kate Keith, the Art Warlock, and the Bad Magic Baroness, running badmagicmerch.com, the Keith, and the socials. Uh, thanks to all those who have joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. I believe over 22,000 members. Last time I looked, uh, continue to make time suck more than a podcast to make it a community. Hell, Nimrod actually had a great conversation with a friend of mine recently. Uh, <laughs> talking about how he's poking around in there and, and he was just, he's like, you know, he goes, don't take this the wrong way. He goes, but I just noticed that the people in the group there, they, they don't, they're not really all about you. He's like, they're just all about each other. And I was like, yeah, it's the fucking best. That's, that was the plan. It's perfect. I'm glad it worked out. When I say plan, once it started going, that was the hope, I guess. I'm glad it worked out. I didn't have some master plan, as you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, hail Nimrod to you. Thank you to Liz Hernandez and her all seen, all seen eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Uh, so nice to see everybody having fun in there. Thanks to the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord as well. You can link to the Discord channel from the TimeSuck app. Thanks to you, Spacers, playing TimeSuck trivia on the app. C. Gallagher 3, currently leading round three, with 7,062 points as of this recording. Round three ends in a few hours after this episode comes out, and then round four begins. Uh, so good luck to those uh, playing the next round, and looks like we'll be sending out a uh, Cowboy Pigeon Trophy again here soon. Next week on TimeSuck, we're going to get fucking super weird. And I'm looking forward to it. We're going to unpack a treasure chest of a topic filled with a variety of fringe conspiracies to answer once and for all a question most of us already knew the answer to since around kindergarten. Is the earth hollow? Are we living on the hard candy shell of a mysterious world unaware of the creamy nougat of strange living in, in, in the world within? There are multiple versions of the hollow earth theory and holy shit biscuits on fire. There are a lot of different ideas as to what or whom may dwell within. We touched on this topic Way back in episode A to President Mole People and Hollow Earth Theory, but we didn't dig deep enough, pun intended. Some Hollow Earth Truthers. <laughs> truther. Whenever you put truther on something, I'm always like, are you? Are you a fucking lunatic? Uh, some Hollow Earth Truthers believe that there are magical cities and advanced beings with unbelievable technologies living beneath the Earth's crust. Others think there are Sasquatches, giants, and or hermaphroditic dwarfs. I didn't make that up. All conspiring against us with a species of aliens who want to destroy us. Almost all the depictions of a hollow earth have inner oceans, continents, unique flora and fauna, even a subterranean sun. Sweet. We got another sun inside the earth in case our sun fizzles out earlier than expected. 
No big whoops. We just all head inside. Uh, over the years, a lot of people have given credence to the hollow earth hypothesis. They haven't all seemed crazy. Some, you know, many years ago, famous scientific thinkers, authors, political leaders, uh, self-taught lecturers, hardcore explorers, famous military pilots, uh, at least a couple snake oil peddling grifters have all touted the importance of looking inside the earth. If all roads lead to the Denver airport, then the Denver airport must be hiding an entrance to the secret catacombs of the hollow earth. Don't miss next week's illuminating New World Order episode on the real truth your geology teacher was too fucking scared to teach you. Am I making my sarcasm clear enough? God, I hope so. Uh, now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update comes from Meat Sack Supreme Wes Hibben, who shares a little, little a name and now a social media connection with a member of last week's Emmanuel David Colt. Wes writes, hi, Time Suck team. First off, love the show. I've been listening weekly for about three years or so. Fuck yeah. Yours is the first podcast I ever mentioned when talking about podcasts. Anyone? Yes. So thanks for all the hard work, laughs, weird knowledge that really isn't all that helpful. That's fair. Anyways, my name is Wes Hibben. I have no relation to the Hibben family in this week's suck. This last, yeah, this last week's suck. As my name isn't very common, a number of years ago, I searched for my name on Facebook and lo and behold, there was another Wes Hibben living out in Alaska. And this dude was the shit. He's out there making the baddest fucking swords and knives I've ever seen. He's a black belt in karate. So of course I sent him a friend request. We never really had much interaction. He's a good 20 or more years older than me, but we sent each other a like here and there. I fully intend to purchase a custom blade from him sometime. Just got to get that sword money first. I also interacted with Gil Hibben on one occasion who invited me to their ranch in, I want to say Kansas. I can't remember exactly where. I haven't finished the episode yet. Not sure if it's mentioned to take a week long class on how to make your own custom knives. I guess he had another one of his sons or something put on or used to uh, a yearly knife making class. Sadly, I didn't accept the invitation, the invitation, but in a better life, perhaps I could have gone and become a member of their cult. Anyways, I was just super excited to have this weird little connection to this week's topic. Keep on sucking. Well, thank you, Wes. Uh, yeah, man, you might've missed out with that, uh, not going on the invite. Could have gotten some interesting cult tales from Gil, was in the cult, or maybe not. Uh, I doubt he talks a lot about his days in Emmanuel's cult, about the time he... Thought that sock loving maniac and false prophet Bruce Longo was God. Uh, save up on that sword money and get you a blade. I've seen their work and yes, very impressive. Good knives, good swords actually. Uh, now for another connection to last week's Emmanuel David Colt suck coming in from hard ass sucker Jared Dixon. Jared sent in a uh, eye-catching email, subject for sure, writing, I am the reincarnated satanic gay son of Emmanuel David. And then he wrote, Greetings, Sir Suckalot, the glorious of Nimrod's holiness. I first started listening to Scared to Death. Then, like the gateway drug it is, it led me to time sucking dick for crack. It's fair. Now I'm a full-fledged space lizard junkie. My story is great because it pertains to both podcasts. I live in Salt Lake City, happen to work at the restaurant where Rachel David and six of her seven children came crashing to their deaths. Yeah. Guess what? It's haunted as fuck. I can already hear Lindsay saying, get the fuck out. But most of the experiences I've had and have heard from my boss are playful and mischievous, which leads me to believe it's the spirits of the children. The first experience I had, I was working at uh, a slow night shift, was taking some dirty dishes back to the dish area, when in my right ear, clear as the many crystals that are in every corner of my house, <laughs> Funny. Uh, I hear a little girl laugh. I felt a cold chill come over me, yeek, and as the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up and I got the goosebumps. At that time, there were no children or even a single lady ween. Nice in the restaurant. The next time was a little more frightening. Everyone had left at night or everyone had left for the night except for me. 
On my way to the office, I walked past some shelves that had some empty cardboard boxes on them. I was about three or four feet away from them when I was struck in the back by one of them. Almost shit myself. But being the brave meat sack I am, I locked myself in the office, turned my headphones on full blast, texted my husband who was coming to get me to hurry the fuck up. (laughs) I bet. My boss, who also loves some STD, has come in the morning after locking up the night before to find all of the TVs, which she herself had turned off playing cartoons. Another time, a large ice scoop flew off the ice machine, hit the ground, spun like a top for about a minute. Yeah. All the time, things I know I've turned off or locked up the night before will be unlocked the next day or on. I actually take video of myself when I do a walkthrough before I lock up because I've been blamed in the past. So that's my story. I almost forgot. Why do I think I'm the reincarnated satanic gay son of Emmanuel David? Uh, Well, I was born August 3rd, 1982, the same day they died, four years later, but I don't know how reincarnation works. Uh, I'm terribly afraid of heights. And growing up, I watched every every single Steven Seagal movie. You do the math. (laughs) Bojangles' dirty little secret, Jared Dick Sucker Dixon. Uh, Jared, you seem like a nut. And from this nut, that is a compliment. Oh my God. You seem like 10 pounds of fun. Put in a five pound bag, my friend. Uh, that haunting story is crazy. That would creep me out. But like you say, I guess if you never feel threatened or anything, oh man, though, that box hit me in the back. The little girl laughed. No, thank you. And how strange for you to hear that episode working where you work. I mean, not that you probably didn't already know a lot of the details, but uh, man. Thanks for the message. And hey, Lucifina, you Steven Seagal-loving satanic sucker. Your message cracked me up. Now, sweet sack Brian Williams has been Cummins Laud. Let's hear about it. Brian writes, I've been Cummins Laud so hard. So I'm listening to Time Suck in the car. I'm on Suck 127 Pedophile Island. You were in the middle of saying how it's funny your sponsors don't know the content or subject of each suck ahead of time. And this episode's sponsor happens to be a mattress company and an ED pill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what my wife calls me. I'm walking into Walmart, talking to her about the list of things to uh, get, just the usual milk, eggs, whips, chains, ball gag, Oreos, bread, whatnot. <laughs> then we get off the phone, put it in my pocket. That moment I hear full volume, quote, pedophiles need erections too, guys. <laughs> there are people around me. They are horrified. I'm frozen as you're laughing at yourself in the background. Dan, I live in the Bible Belt of America. There are old ladies staring at me. And, and and when they're staring at me, I realize I'm still wearing my work shirt that says, information redacted, auto company of nowhere, Oklahoma. Thank you for the laughs and embarrassments. Uh, well, thank you for the kind words and the message, Brian. I hope none of those ladies went down to the auto company you work at, told your boss they might be employing a horny pedophile and enjoy those Oreos and the ball gags and everything. I, fu- I love Oreos. So addictively delicious. I can resist a lot of things that Lindsay has in the house because Lindsay, like my joke many years ago, our house is fucking loaded with treats uh always they're supposedly for the kids but <laughs> we end up eating them and uh i can usually resist but not oreos uh next up super sucker joseph morris who answered my call to share more resources for figuring out what u.s presidential candidate you line up with wrote political website for all the meat sacks hey master sucker of many podcasts uh, not going to apologize for the length of this email because i wrote it slowly for your mush mouth thank you so you're welcome okay Anyway, you mentioned political websites. I have one I use a lot, isidewith.com. You fill out a quiz on all the political issues and using answers submitted by candidates or other users or even your own. Uh, If you don't know how you feel about the question, you could skip it, read history on it, read the argument in it, read what uh, it's about. Once you're finished, it aligns you with all the candidates, tells you how much or little you agree with them based on their voting records, answers to the same questions. 
It doesn't seem uh, biased to me and has a lot of interesting information on the site. You can also set up a username and save your quiz answers, change answers, get more questions. Hail Nimrod. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. Uh, the Queen of the Second Eye both took it. I had never heard of it. And I, I, re I really like how it gives you a percentage on how well you match up with not just one candidate, but with all of them. I'm embarrassed to admit, I didn't even, I didn't fucking know there was five candidates. Uh, not four. So sorry, Brian Carroll. Uh, not only did I not know you were running for president, I didn't know you existed. <laughs> I didn't know the American Solidarity Party existed. Uh, whoops. <laughs> uh, now I do. I learned something. And it was very interesting to see how I lined up uh, with, or how I didn't line up with the various candidates. Um, very cool website. Uh, if there was bias or spin, I didn't notice. Uh, none of the questions seemed to be framed in some way that felt conservative or liberal to me. Uh, so yay more knowledge. Yay internet for making things way fucking easier uh, to find out, you know, uh, about these political things. Uh, you know, you don't have to read the paper every day for months or watch hours of the nightly news to figure this stuff out anymore, which I don't have time for. So hail Nimrod. Uh, and finally, we'll end today's updates with a sweet message about siblings bonded by dark comedy. Kick-ass sack Amanda Kraft writes another funny subject line. She writes, uh, if you don't shout this out, I will slap you with Chikatila's limp shamecock like the fuckhead you are. Aggressive. Coming in hot. I like it. Then she writes, dear Suckmaster on high, master of the space lizards, glory be to you and your suckery of the most intensest, of the most intensest. Praise Bojangles and praise Josefina. However, Michael motherfucking McDonald can go to hell. Okay. All right. Agree to disagree. Uh, I have to write you to and ask you to give a shout out to my little brother, Tommy. He introduced me to scared to death at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the fuckery that went along with it. We're total creeps. I'm, I love listening to you and Queen Lindsay every week. I listen with my fellow creeper, my 13-year-old son, Miles. Awesome. We found the suck through scared to death, but this email is not about scared to death. Insert semicolon, a nod to get out of here, devil. Uh, it's about the fucking awesome suck and you, you beautiful bastard. Recently, Tommy and I were together with our families for a game night. I love that. My husband and Tommy's wife uh, are not, and they would be appalled at the content, and they just couldn't handle the suckiness. They're not time suckers. I'm pretty sure if they read this email, they would be horrified, and my husband would consider divorce. <laughs> Tommy and I, however, have the most dark sense of humor anybody could have. Anyways, game night was filled with inside jokes that only members of the cult and curious would get. The funniest of all was when my two-year-old nephew asked for peanut butter, a peanut butter sandwich, and my brother and I both looked up and said in unison, peanut butter, butter showbiz. <laughs> our spouses quickly glance at each other with the what the fuck look in their faces I believe that is the bond that will always tie us together how fucked up is that uh, but seriously my brother is the most incredible person I know and I'm so proud of him seriously if I could like if I could be like anyone I would aspire to be like him that is so sweet a successful military career as a military police officer in the army doing two tours in the Middle East now has a cushy job at the Chamber of Commerce where he rubs elbows with the mayor of our town is the most amazing dad to his two boys, has a girl on the way. He's a dad that I wish our dad would have been. He's an all-around, the best meat sack I know. I'm proud to be his sister. God, about to make me tear up here. Love the suck. Three out of five stars. You better keep sucking or I'll hunt you down and slap you with Chikatilo's limp, sh limp shame cock like the fuckhead you are. I really like saying that. That was not me. That was Amanda. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Amanda Craft. Well, thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Tommy, for your service, for being an awesome brother, incredible dad, husband, just a damn fine meat sack. You two seem like you're funny as shit. Amanda definitely is. Sounds like you two share a whole lot of laughs. How beautiful is that? Love how much fun the two of you seem to have and that you both seem to be terrific people with a dark as fuck sense of humor. Those are my favorite meat sacks. Hail Nimrod to you both. That's how I do it in Hollywood. Peanut butter. Showbiz. And that is all for today. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. 
Thank you all for continuing to rate and review Time Suck. Uh, the barrage of three out of five stars reviews fucking kills me. I love how that spread to all the stuff I'm a part of. And, and if you look at various review threads, uh, you just see people posting every once in a while just so confused and it cracks me up. Uh, more Scared to Death Tuesday night. More Is We Dumb with Reverend Doctor on Wednesday. More Incredible Feats Monday through Friday. Uh, be a better dad than Fun Frank this week. Don't knock on any stranger's doors hoping to measure anyone or worse. And most importantly, of course, uh, why don't you keep on sucking? Come on, it's fun. It's a kazoo. It's got a good beat. It's kind of bouncy. You'll never get it out of your head now!